And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be, around this rotating globe which has changed. It has changed. We're going to be talking for the next three hours about how it has changed. Literally, in the last 24 hours, it has changed. Um, Before we get to all that, let me swing into some news. One of the reasons it has changed, if you go to the other side of midnight. Dot com. If you're new to the show, that's our URL. Go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner, which says disclosure is here. But uh, why should we care? The big picture. And I want to thank my guest tonight, Tim Ventura, for kind of uh, suggesting that we do something on this scale. Because a lot of times when we're dealing with this alternate stuff, We get so down in the weeds. We get so nitty-gritty in terms of detail. We kind of forget, you know, to stand back. uh, You know, the current uh, cliche is the view from 30,000 feet. We kind of forget the big picture. And I I want to talk a lot about what's going on because there there are several revolutions going on simultaneously. And surprise, surprise, I believe, and I think I can document that, that they're all interconnected. There are no separate moving parts in this maelstrom that we're going through. They are connected. And we're going to have some wide-ranging discussion and even uh, outright speculation about how some of these connections are playing out and will play out. So let me start with number one. I don't know how many of you got up at the crack of dawn on the West Coast this morning or at a more reasonable time on the East Coast or wherever you are on the planet. It was uh, probably a weird time for you. But this morning, a revolution was launched successfully, brilliantly, in great dramatic uh, television media style. Remember Roddenberry's rule, if it's real, it will be on television. Well, it was on television. And one network, MSNBC, devoted hours and hours to continuous coverage with a whole range of interesting viewpoints. And frankly, it's so interesting to see there's a bunch of uh, space nerds over there because starting with Ali Velchi's Crack of Dawn program here in the uh, Land of Enchantment, uh, the coverage all focused on Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson taking a suborbital trip to space with three other colleagues from uh, Virgin Galactic. And the whole flight, including the liftoff from that two-mile-long runway south of me here uh, at America's Spaceport, as they're calling it, which is not far from Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Talk about an interestingly named town. In fact, there's a there's a there's a story attached to that little place that someday we may actually go into. Anyway, the liftoff occurred, and about an hour later, they were safely back on the on the tarmac, having completed the first privately funded commercial flight with civi civilian passengers in the history of the space effort. Now. The networks and the major media are billing this as the battle of the billionaires. I mean, it's kind of like it it gets all very quickly. And the feud between, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, who, of course, is running Blue Origins, which is a second commercial 
spaceflight company for tourists and civilians to go into space. Um, and in fact, the headline uh, reads something like Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson takes suborbital space trip, stealing the spotlight from Jeff Bezos. It's a bunch of crap. This is really, and in fact, the, the headline in some of these network coverage was um, the, the, uh, the second space race. No, no, it's the second age of space. This is the beginning of what has been desperately needed to break loose all of the secrets that NASA and the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese and the Japanese and the Indians and the Israelis and everybody who's sending government missions into space have been keeping a wrap on for over 50 years really out there the only way we're going to find out what's really out there is if you have a lot of civilian eyes and cameras and they cannot plug the dike because there are too many leaks too many people seeing too many extraordinary things in space that the governments have agreed to keep secret because in the words of what was that israeli general the a uh, Mossad general who said, basically, the ETs don't think it's time yet. Well, of course not, because they've been orchestrating the cover-up. Uh, I have been making quiet side bets before the Chinese sent their mission to Mars that weird things were going to happen. And the weird things would happen because the Chinese, unlike uh, they play act down here on Earth, when it comes to space stuff, like everybody else in the government game of space exploration and development, they're not the masters of their ship and the captains of their own souls. They are beholden to someone else, someone upstairs who is giving marching orders. And when the Chinese got to Mars with the uh, Zorong rover and the Tianwen um, uh, orbiter, uh, which means in Chinese, questions of heaven. Um, lo and behold, like for a month, nothing happened. We got a couple of black and white images and then nothing and nothing and nothing. No video, no color, no play-by-play, -play, no amazing images from the surface. Just kind of, well, we made it. And then NASA with their, you know, basically... Hubble-type telescope in Mars orbit, the uh, MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which instead of looking up into space, is looking down at Mars, but can take extraordinary images that show detail on the order of inches. As soon as NASA took a picture of the Zerong rover on the surface of Mars, the Chinese rover, suddenly, within hours, the Chinese release a flurry of color images including the weird non-blue butterscotch icky skies which conform of course to nasa's propaganda effort to make us think the skies of mars are not blue they are in fact this icky kind of greenish yellow in other words the chinese were following the orders that nasa is following and they joined the nasa team and they were good little boys and girls and they quietly put out data which does not conflict with the NASA data. But they slipped up. 
and that's probably um, uh, a subject for a whole other show. When we get back to Mars in a week or two and things are developed a little bit more, but let's say where they slipped up. Remember, we had the GoPro video of the uh, descent into the Martian atmosphere from Perseverance, which showed the parachutes popping and the skies and the skies above the landing site were this wonderful, deep, deep blue. Seven miles up, 35,000 feet plus, they were deep, deep blue as they should be. Well, when the Chinese a few days ago released their parachute entry into the Martian atmosphere, their skies were icky, butterscotch, greenish color, not blue. And it's because obviously the Chinese took their orders one step too far and there was no physics involved. And of course, there cannot be the amount of dust loading at that altitude, seven miles or more above the surface, because the entry of the Martian uh, atmosphere is the same regardless of the flag on the side of the spacecraft. So the skies of Mars in the Chinese video should have been the same deep blue as they were for NASA's entry, and they weren't because they got the order, make the damn skies butterscotch, and they followed it blindly and slavishly and made all the skies butterscotch, including way upstairs where the skies on the NASA data were, as they should be, beautiful, deep, deep blue. Anyway, uh, detail, detail, detail. So what happened this morning? Well, this morning, Richard Branson, as the first of a series of private commercial efforts to democratize space, to send eager, curious, and camera-snapping, you know, amateurs, civilians, ordinary citizens, ordinary folks, galloping someday around the whole solar system, beginning with Earth orbit and then the moon, he sent his mission as an up-and-down repetition of Alan Shepard's suborbital flight decades and decades and decades ago. And uh, it all worked swimmingly, brilliantly, including some really amazing video. There is no competition among the billionaires. There is no... uh, you know, second space race. This is the second age of space. It's the beginning of the democratization. And it is only through such a democratization that I think we are going to ultimately find out what is really waiting for us in the rest of the solar system. may take a while, uh, but then you have Elon Musk. Because Elon Musk, of course, is ahead of both these guys. He's not just sending suborbital flights into, you know, the inner, inner edges of space. He's actually sending spacecraft into Earth orbit. He is docking with the space station. And at the end of the summer, he's going to be sending, I think, five or six civilians in the Dragon spacecraft into orbit to continue this democratization where it really counts which is spinning around the Earth in Earth orbit as a prelude to going further, which in his horizon is the moon. And of course, there's amazing things there waiting for non-military, non-controlled, non, 
um, censored cameras, and we only have to wait two or three more years, and amazing additional things are going to unfold. Okay, that's item number one. Item number two kind of is connected, because in case you haven't noticed, the Earth is going to hell in a handbasket in terms of environment. Um, It was 116 in Seattle a few days ago. It was 100 here today. It was 100 here yesterday. It was even warmer down south at the spaceport where Branson launched and returned. Um, We are undergoing an extraordinary environmental revolution, and it's not good. And in terms of current plans, I think if I'm being very honest, and I try to be, it's too little and too late. There needs to be a stunning breakthrough, a disruptive technology introduced into the Earth environmental climate change equation. And as we're going to be discussing later in the morning, that breakthrough is literally in our midst. It's just not recognized as such by the mainstream, including, I believe, Bezos, Musk, and Branson. But it will be because it's already amongst us. It's already being pursued. And all it takes is the addition of money and, frankly, not that much money to bring it, like these private now space efforts, to commercial fruition. The question is, will there be the will and the leadership, non-governmental, to make it happen? Part of the big picture we're going to be talking about uh, this morning, because I believe on that extraordinary um, set of developments rests the future well-being of the human race and the planet Earth itself. When you have an extraordinary problem like we are confronting, I mean, come on, 120 degrees in southern Canada? Are you nuts? I mean, Death Valley was 130 this afternoon. If this continues, we will not. So there needs to be a game changer. Fortunately, the game changer is in our midst. It's just not yet recognized as such. And these commercial space efforts will hasten the day when these two disruptive technologies come together. And then, as my grandmother used to say, it's Katie Barr, the door. Item number three. Um, We've been following, of course, this incredible tragedy of the um, collapse of half of that uh, condominium in uh, Surfside, uh, just north of Miami. Well, they're now up to, I believe it's almost 80 uh, folks who we know definitely now have lost their lives. There are 60 who are still missing. Uh, The trend curves are not good. The rescue effort turned into a recovery effort. Uh, last Wednesday, Um, but there is a a spark of good news in item number three, Binks the cat, um, a black cat who they thought had been lost. He and his uh, family lived on the ninth floor of this uh, 12-floor condominium. Binks the cat was found wandering amid the ruins after two weeks. He apparently had crawled out from under some piece of debris, some void, uh, as the rescuers were removing, uh, you know, pieces of concrete 
hundreds of thousands of pounds of concrete have been physically removed by hundreds of volunteers who have been laboring in the 100 degree, you know, Florida sun and the incredible 90 plus percent humidity to try to find anybody still alive. Well, Binks was alive and has been reunited with his family. And you take the wins wherever you can get them. Um, Item number four. We're going to be talking tonight again about this remarkable political development, which is that the defense intelligence agencies, including uh, the DNI and himself, who coordinates these 17 American intelligence agencies that funnel intelligence to the president and to the executive branch, the, the DNI produced a report per order in the legislation uh, to the Senate after 180 days, which was signed by President then Trump, um, you know, last December. And that report, six pages, which is very, very skimpy and has been assessed all the way from it's a nothing burger on the one hand to it's revealing on the other. That report is available in item number four. So if you want to read the actual report, go to item number four, click on that, and that will tell you uh, what the establishment is setting up in terms of potential hearings which we've now heard multiple times are being envisioned, starting perhaps with the House Intelligence Committee and the Subcommittee on uh, uh, Counterintelligence, chaired by a representative from the state of Indiana, Mr. Cantor. We will see how that proceeds, um, and we're going to be talking about this report at some length during the rest of this morning, because that is part of the big picture. How much is going to be revealed? How much is it irrelevant to the development of future events as to how much is going to be revealed? In other words, is the truth going to overwhelm agendas regardless of the intelligence community's predisposition to try to uh, work toward what we used to call back in the Nixon era a very limited hangout? Again, Part of the big picture conversation we're going to have in the next uh, three hours. Item number five. While all this is going on, the esteemed Pew Research uh, Center has conducted a current poll of Americans. I'm trying to see here how many they poll. These polls typically are like a thousand or maybe fifteen hundred people. It's supposed to represent diversity, geographical, economic, political, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what's so interesting, and this is the actual poll, not a summary, um, 65% of Americans say intelligent life exists outside the earth and do not see UFOs as a major security threat. Now, why is this interesting? Because it means that Brookings, Remember, that was that secret NASA study some, you know, 50 years plus ago, which was commissioned by the Eisenhower administration, then handed off to the Kennedy administration, who gave it to the 87th Congress, which published it in the congressional report, which is how we ultimately got to see it. Remember, Brookings basically said, I'm going to summarize, paraphrase, that if Americans were introduced to the idea of extraterrestrials without significant and extensive 
decades of pre-preparation. They would freak out. Scientists would dismally go home and never go back to the lab because everything they thought they knew would be found to be either untrue or already discovered and they would lose morale. And I mean, it was a very dismal projection by Brookings 50 plus years ago. And the bottom line was, as they said in a headline story in the New York Times for December of 1961, civilization itself was in danger of collapse. And then Brookings made recommendations of a very vigorous, long-term educational effort to bring Americans and by metonymy civilians all over the world up to speed on the non-threatening nature of finding out we are not alone. And they recommended all kinds of television shows, educational programs in schools, major movies, ads on television to sell commercial products. In other words, a broad front assault on the cultural backwardness of humankind on earth circa the paranoid, you know, 1950s, think of the McCarthy hearings, um, to basically get people up to speed that aliens are out there, that they don't represent any kind of real threat, and that they should be embraced in terms of new knowledge and new activities, new science, new technologies, and new frontiers. Well, decades long, I mean, 50 years is five decades plus of educational activities on the subject of aliens and ETs spread over modern mainstream media for all those 50 plus years seems to have uh, kind of made its mark because now over 65% of Americans say intelligent life does exist outside the earth and even more important, they don't see UFOs as a major threat to national security, which of course is the exact opposite of the DNI report to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which listed in the first paragraph the words threat three times. Well, what's wrong with this picture? Again, we're going to be discussing this at some length tonight in terms of the big picture. Um, Item number six, these are out of sync. Uh, Item number six and seven I'm going to save for the body of the show. So without further ado, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go to my guest. And I can't seem to get rid of this thing on the screen. I don't know why. Uh, Darn, darn, darn. These things keep popping up and, and they don't let you... Get rid of them. Ah, why not? Why not? I don't want to do that. I want to get rid of that. Uh, oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Okay. My guest this morning uh, is Tim Ventura. Tim and I have known each other. Good grief. How long have we known each other? It's been at least a couple of decades. He is the founder of American Anti-Gravity, the nation's largest forum de- dedicated to exploring the physics and innovations behind anti-gravity, warp drives, and emerging sciences in the breakthrough propulsion physics arena. Originally, American Anti-Gravity was founded in 2002 as a hands-on experimenter's website 
for this emerging propulsion technology, it has grown over time into a massive collection of research, interviews, and scientific knowledge relating to emerging space and energy science, and it serves as a community center for bleeding-edge research not covered by the traditional media. American Anti-Gravity's research has been featured on Discovery, BBC, Nippon Television, Jane's Defense Weekly, Wired Magazine, and dozens of other television, radio, and print channels and live conference events. Ventura works as a curator, collector, and subject matter expert in the field of breakthrough propulsion, helping to locate and interview innovators doing research in this area and help explore how their innovations may serve the future of space exploration. So without further ado, Tim Ventura, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Richard, thank you for having me back on. It's an honor to join you, and I think this certainly is kind of a momentous occasion to come on the show. So thank it, you for it, having it, me. It really is. Today was the dawning, as I've been writing for many, many years, of the second age of space. And the hallmark of that is civilian democratization as opposed to top-down control by a handful of guys behind the scenes in government. But before we get into the, the kind of the depths and the details and the nitty-gritty, let me go back to, to you. How did you get into all this? Because frankly, uh, apart from my job, I think you have one of the most interesting jobs in this whole field. How did Tim get interested in anti-gravity at a time when most people, when you say the words, they look at you like you're from Mars yourself? Well, you know, I first got into this back in the early 90s. I think my very first exposure to it was, well, I mean, obviously, you know, reading a lot of science fiction as a child, right? And then pulp fiction and comics and things like that. So I, I, I should thank my father, Phil Ventura, for you know, for that exposure. But um, I, I would say my, my first serious exposure to it was something called Harbor Tech with Bill Butler. And he actually was working on trying to build the Back to the Future hoverboard. He, he sold planes in the back of popular science. And so, so I, I would say that that's kind of where I got bit by the bug. You know, that's, the, that's where the, the journey down the rabbit hole began. Um, but then I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't credit coast to coast AM also. Right. I mean, you and I have known each other for many years, but then for at least a decade before that, I was a regular coast listener. And so I would listen to you and art. And, and so I would think, I, I would say that inspired that, that vision even more, you know? Hmm. You know, it's, it, it's so interesting. Art is no longer with us, but his presence is overwhelmingly felt. I was talking to someone um, um, uh, last day or so, and they make it a policy to kind of scan the dial and listen to what's going on. And on on Premiere, they run, I guess, somewhere in time, which is the repeats of some of the old Art Bell shows. And last night, oddly enough, even though I couldn't be on the show because of technical problems here, I was over on coast because Art apparently spent with a couple of guests and callers talking about me for half an hour, and I wasn't even on the show. So, you know, what you do, be careful what you do, because it will live long after you've left wherever, you, you know, you were domiciled at the time. Um, I think they were finding fault with my contention that the uh, 
Apollo 11 landing was done according to uh, ritual calendrical uh, time references in terms of landing on the moon. But as Barnum used to say, it's not so much what they say about you. It's do they spell your name right? And they spell my name right. You, you and Art, and, and again, I, I know it sounds like a brown nosing to say this, but I'm, I'm being completely honest. At the dawn of the internet, right? And, and I, I would tell you what, hold it, it there because we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura, who is founder of something that's going to become, I think, increasingly important in the future called American Anti-Gravity. Anti-Gravity, which is going to be a mainstream subject because of this Pentagon report, the DNI the Senate hearings, what's going on in Washington regarding UFOs slash UAPs. All of this, I believe, will ultimately come down to how do we control gravity itself? Because based on that control, the real democratization of space is going to unfold. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't Touch that dial, because you're going to miss the revolution. because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So what you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict, you can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so 
I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Welcome back, everyone, for this Sunday night, July 11th, 7-11. I mean, Branson chose 7-11 to launch to the edge of space. In fact, there's this very bizarre kind of controversy, which, again, I think is kind of manufactured by uh, the media and not so much real. And so we'll get back to it with my guest, Tim Ventura. Tim, we were talking about uh, Art Bell. Art had a profound effect, I think, on what is about to happen now. And I think in terms of service to Brookings, if there was a single individual who did more to educate the general population that the things that go bump in the night, in fact, are not scary, but potentially incredibly important and useful for civilization, it was Art Bell. Yeah, well, I, I think that you guys really changed the world in, in a way, you know, in a big way. Um, yeah, I mean, coast to coast AM, you know, I, I think they said it owned the night. I think that was Art's thing. He owned the night, right? This was in the 90s. This was before the Internet. And when the Internet happened, I remember the, it was one of the first major websites online. And this was at a time when people were interested in ghosts and UFOs and things like that. They weren't able to find any real information online about it. They wanted news, and Coast was putting up that news. And I remember you guys would do shows, and, you know, Art would talk about the counter, you know, the, the, the website counter. It would be just like a million, a million, a million, you know. I mean, hundreds of millions of viewers. And it's not that there were so many people on the Internet. It's that there were no websites, and Coast was one of the only websites. And so – you had this national radio show that was on every AM, you know, every AM band, you know, all night, and and then it was driving one of the few big websites. So you guys had, I mean, it's it's no surprise that you know, Coast I think helped to change the culture, and I think it it added a lot of transparency to these things during that period of time, you know. So Coast fueled your interest in anti gravity. In what way and where does it lead? Well, I, I would say, I, you know, I wouldn't say it was specific like that. But, and, you know, the reason I'm kind of pontificating on Coast is I was thinking about, you know, one, one of the big ones was this was back. Uh, I remember this was one of the ones that I, I recall was you did an episode back in the mid 90s when uh, there was a probe that was coming into Mars that, that crashed into Mars, I guess. And, you know, and, and you would predict it 
that this thing wouldn't touch down. And there was this play-by-play, and then the probe went silent. And you and Art did a big show about that and discussed all these various possibilities, you know. And the thing that got me was at that point in time, I remember you could turn on the radio at night and you wouldn't be sure that you would go to bed in the same world. And, and it, was, it was that powerful uh, at the time. And, and that, it didn't last forever, but I don't think it was supposed to. You know, we, we, have those, we have those periods in time where you're just at the right time in the right place to change everything. And, and so I would say that Coast, for, for me, was, I think for a lot of people, was an inspiration to realize that the world is not as simple as we've been told or we'd like to believe. Um, you know, but I, I think that it was also, it, it opened up a lot of doors, right? Um, I mean, the average person had never heard of things like remote viewing, you know, your work. I mean, it, it just, it, you had so much additional exposure and people started to question things. And I think that that questioning has continued since then. Okay. Anti-gravity. So when did you decide to set up this website? Because frankly, it's a resource and I'm so glad it's still in existence because you, I don't know how you single-handedly did it, but you amassed such an archive of unknown and little read and hard to discover or track down real science, real engineering, real hands-on experiments in a field which has almost had as much bad press as UFOs themselves. Yeah. Well, and in reality, when you get into your gravity modification, breakthrough propulsion, right, warp drives, stuff like that, it's really all the same community, you know. Um, This is a tiny little community. I mean, you've probably got about 100 people who are really serious, you know. They all know each other. And then you may have a couple hundred more who are working on various projects. I mean, we're talking globally, right? It's a big planet. If you wanted to break this community down, you're probably talking about less than a thousand people and probably only about a hundred of them are serious. So, you know, and in the past, uh, when I first got interested in it, it was one of those things where you'd go to the library, you'd buy books online, you'd buy books out of the back of magazines, right? It was um, you know, every now and then you'd go to a conference and maybe someone would be speaking on it there, but it wouldn't be a conference about it. So you, you'd collect these bits and pieces and, and the people in this community are definitely hoarders, right? They, they've all got, it, it's funny because they've all got file folders, you know, and they're all full of news clippings and books and stuff like that. And, and this, this micro community is the same. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have this in lots of other places, right? Like, um, People who are into remote viewing, they've got their community. People who are into, you know, Gary Geller spoon bending, they've got theirs. But with with the gravity community, they that's, you know, that's it. And so, I guess one of my goals was to put up a repository for them. I was building lifters, which which have some gravity modification and some ion winds. There's a there's a complex effect. Okay, you need to describe for folks that have no idea what you just said. What the heck's a lifter? Well, so it's, it's a triangular shape. It's made out of aluminum foil. You put a high voltage on it. It takes off and flies with no moving parts. Um, the, the nice thing about it is it takes off and flies. So for the first time, we were able to put video up online. You know, now, I didn't invent these things. It goes back to Thomas Townsend Brown in the 1950s. And, and some of the ideas behind it go back further than that. 
And again, even back then, there was this debate. They said, this is ion wind. This is the high voltage traveling between the wire and the foil, which takes air with it and causes thrust. That's definitely a part of it, but that wasn't all of it. And so I started building these along with several hundred other people you know, online, and it was something to build back in 2000, Wasn't well, there a famous French guy who really did a lot of experiments on this? Yeah, Jean-Louis Naudin. Naudin, yeah, okay. Yeah, and his website was still up. And, and for him, he was into it briefly on his website. He put up probably the top 10 variations on the design. Um, his lifter, when he got into it, was based on an experiment that was done in NASA. NASA had a subcontractor in Huntsville build one of these, um, and they based theirs on T.P. Brown. So, again, this, this goes back, you know, I mean, it, it goes back and forth, right? It's, it's just wheels within wheels. But the, the long and the short of it was because these things take off and fly, um, people got engaged. We were able to put the video up, and, and next thing you know, because I was, I had the repository for it online. I had lots of photos and videos, and later interviews. I ended up doing a lot of media work for it. So that's that's kind of the you know the short version of American anti gravity, I guess. Hmm. Um, let's bring the conversation current because to me, and I've gotten tons of email from all kinds of different people with all kinds of different political stripes and the and the majority of them when they're when they're talking about the dni report and the senate intelligence committee and the machinations in washington and the cia involvement and hearings and all that they're basically saying oh it's all going to be a con it's going to be a psyop nothing will come out of it it's all just going to be a few words and then it will all just go away and i don't think they understand at least they don't understand it the way I think I do, which is it's almost irrelevant what is said in these hearings. The fact that the hearings are being held and they're being held based on a technology which is being given to us by the most credible American institution still left standing, which is the U.S. military. And the Navy, you know, my dad was Navy, so I'm partial to the Navy uh, to boot. The fact that that source, which is unimpeachable, is saying there is some kind of anti-gravity vehicles zipping around the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, buzzing our uh, carrier fleets and demonstrating performances that make even the most advanced military aircraft look like, you know, little, you know, rusted wagons by comparison. For instance, diving from 80,000 feet as tracked by the Aegis radar systems, which is our most advanced uh, radar in the, in, the, in the fleet, from 80,000 feet down to the deck just above the ocean surface in a second. I mean, the G-forces alone let alone the propulsion capabilities and the fact that the pilots, when they look at these things, there's no wings, there's no engines, there's no protuberances. They're just like smooth ovoids compared to uh, Tic Tacs, white little Tic Tacs, that we're looking at something which is technological, which is absolutely running rings around anything that any government has wafted into any skies on Earth 
right there, you have the beginnings of a revolution because there's only one possible means for this technology to perform, and that is that somebody, somewhere, we can talk about the who and where and when and all that, has cracked the secret of anti-gravity, which means it's possible. If someone else has done it, then anybody can do it, and the hearings will make very clear with witnesses, I presume Navy pilots, I presume analysts in the CICs of the Nimitz or the Teddy Roosevelt, whatever, that track these things, that will put on the record that anti-gravity is real. And then, as I said, quoting my grandmother again, Katie barred the door. Because the biggest impediment to doing anything in science or engineering is understanding that it can be done. Well, if, if, go I, ahead. if I could, but yeah, if I could interrupt you for a second, and I, I would back up there. And again, go, thinking, thinking back to those, you know, those heydays in the mid nineties, you know, what did you ever imagine at that time that you would be doing a show where the, the U S government, the U S military has said, not sort of said, but said UFOs are real because that's, I mean, that's, that's our starting point. UFOs are real. Now for me, I mean, I, I, perhaps I'm naive, but you know, I, I realize sixty percent of the American public is willing to believe that. But willing to believe is different. Well, than no, no, knowing. no, no, no. They're they're willing to right. believe in more. They believe extraterrestrials are real. They have connected in their mind UFOs and ETs, where the yeah. where the nitpickers are trying to separate. Oh, it's it's a technology, but UF ETs are never mentioned in this DNI report. They're looking at potential terrestrial adversaries like China, like Russia, like Iran. And it's silly. It's stupid. It's absurd. Well, yeah. And, and that, that goes to, and th again, this is, this is an area that for the last few months, I've been intensely focused on this, you know, I, I mean, for obvious reasons, but um, the, it, one of the things with all the people in my network, there was a lot of disappointment, right? They're saying, well, nobody said that extraterrestrials are real, you know? Well, they didn't they have to, right? This no, of course Holmes not. Place. That's See, it's people a, don't a, understand yeah. politically that in Washington, they never tell you the truth. They all must carry around little copies of Emily Dickinson. They tell the truth sometimes until it's slant. The very fact that the subject has been legitimized is going to open such a cascade of evidence and stories and data and files and case studies and all of this stuff that's been waiting like pent up consumer demand. The legitimization is the major huge win here. It yeah, does yeah. not matter yeah. what they say initially. Doesn't matter. And 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 it's and I would say that the, the logic takes you to you know the and and again this is this is the other part of it this is what i was hoping for with this report when that report came out again it was a nine-page report and honestly only five of those pages had any substance to it it didn't have details it just had summaries but when i read through that after it, and the first thing i heard because other people downloaded it before me and they were like oh this report sucks i'm so depressed you know I read through it and I said, you know what, this, <laughs> on this June 25th, I was like, this June 25th preliminary UAP task force report contains exactly what I needed. It's, right? a, it, it's like Christmas arrived early. Yeah, because what it says is UFOs are real. 
and the performance can't be matched by anything here on earth. That's all they needed to say. Yeah, that's all. That's, you know? And so, then the, the, you know, Fibber McGee's closet, using an ancient reference, opens, and all of the amazingly cool stuff, some of which Keith and Kintia and, and their guests got into last night, absolutely inevitably falls out of that closet. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think that's the beginning of, I mean, I know it's the beginning of something much larger. And now we have to, we have to start to explore what that means. And I think that's going to be more difficult than we've imagined. Now, you had talked about decades of, of kind of indoctrination campaigns to get people used yeah, to the idea. Yeah, now, but, but the downside to that is it's also created a mythology, which may or may not be right, right? Like with Roswell, that may or may not be true. And the, the greys and the reptilians and all of this stuff that goes along with it. So, so I think one of the challenges is going to be, and, and I think this will be difficult for the American public, is they have this mythology that they accept. When they think UFO, they're thinking, you know, they, they, there's a lot that goes along with that. There's a lot of baggage. A lot of that baggage probably isn't true. But we don't know what is and isn't true yet. So I think that's going to be one of the next challenges. I totally agree. Talk about the difference between belief and experience. Well, I mentioned before the air, I mentioned Charlie Sheen, and I got a snicker from you about that. But it was – see, I got another – yeah. And I'm sure everyone in the audience remembers when he went on air, he was acting crazy. He was – he was. It, we now know he was drinking himself into a stupor, all of those things. Um, he admitted this. I believe it was last year in an interview. The reason that he went completely crazy was – he was diagnosed with HIV. Oh. He didn't know what – and So he yeah, thought he got a death sentence. Exactly. And so now intellectually, he knows, okay, there's lots of treatments. There's lots – intellectually – Oh, we're light years ahead in HIV from the 80s. Right? No, or, or another example that probably everyone can relate to is you know, anyone who's parent, that moment where your significant other – shows you the pregnancy test, at least for men, or with women, when you hold that pregnancy test up and it's positive, you know, and you realize I'm a parent, I'm going to be a parent, right? It, intellectually, there's a difference between like knowing or believing, you know, and, and that gut level, this is real, this is happening. You know what I mean? And, and I think on that gut level, I think America and probably the world is still on the cusp of acceptance, you know, and, and there, there are lots of little things that I think are going to change. Right. And like one example is, um, SETI, which, which I, you know, I support SETI. I think that they have a really valid mission. Um, uh, we're in acronym hell here. What's SETI? Yeah. And so SETI did a big, you know, no, no, no. Re- what, what is SETI? Oh, sorry. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence by right? radio. Yeah, and they're leasing time on these big satellite dishes, and they're searching, you know, spectral brands, spectral bands around the universe looking for signals. You know, I, I think right now um, they, they've released a statement about UAPs too, and they've kind of tried to differentiate it and say, okay, well, we're looking for intelligence out there, but I have a feeling that once people accept this phenomena as real on a gut level. They're going to look at SETI and say, hey, point the dishes down. <laughs> They're already here. You know? 
and and it's it's not to be critical of study. I, what I was mean, that great line with the little blonde and Poltergeist? They're here. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of things are going to change, and I think that it's going to be a process of emotional acceptance. And I know that sounds it probably sounds wishy washy to say it like that, but um, the reason I say it is that's something I've had to kind of go through myself. Um, there are a lot of things that I'm willing to accept in this world, but I explored UFOs years ago and I walked away from it and said, you know what? I see a lot of cultural baggage. I see a lot of mythology. I see a lot of crap, but what I don't see is real evidence. And I, over the last year, I've had to come to terms with that. And for me, you know, this report for me was the thing where I held out hope and I said, well, said, I'm, I'm going to withhold judgment you know, personally, until I see this report, and let's let's just see if I'm crazy. And I'll be damned if it didn't come out and say UFOs are real, you know. Now, they, they, they use tons of softeners, you know. UFOs probably might be real. They probably might be more advanced vehicles than us. But once you, once you read through all of the softeners that they use, what they're saying is this is a real phenomenon. It's technological in nature. These are vehicles, right? This isn't a figment of imagination. This isn't sensor spoofing. They said these are real physical objects. We've got them on multiple sensors, and they're doing things that our vehicles can't match. And you know, and then they put out the obligatory: it, it could be Russia or China. Well, <laughs> yeah, and, and this is something um, I, you know I've discussed. I, I mean, uh, my, my good friend Frank Milburn has done a lot of research. He he um, he wrote a report called the Pentagon's UAP Task Force. And he did a lot of basically a military analysis level on this. And what he walked away saying was, look, the, the Chinese are using 1980s era jet engines in their fifth generation fighter craft. They can't get them to work. They can't buy updated engines from Russia. They're having trouble getting basic stuff to work. You know, and the Russians have this ailing. I mean, they've got an ailing air force that's, that's falling apart at the seams. They're having trouble maintaining their equipment. They spend, I think, 10 times less on their military than we do. So if it wasn't invented here, it damn well wasn't invented there. And that to me, that says, well, OK, you know, unless you've got a rabbit in your pocket, you know, it's it's from someplace else. And I, so that leaves extraterrestrials or time travel. I think those are our two hypotheses. Hmm. Yeah, as I said, uh, extraterrestrials or variants thereof. We've got some reports published in your section of Radio with Pictures. And again, you go to tonight's banner, which says right on the homepage, um, disclosure is here. Why should we care? The big picture. Uh, Right under that, you'll see uh, fast links to items Click on Tim's, and that will take you down to his section. You've got one section titled Alt Propulsion. Then you've got two and three, which deal with the UAP, which is the current uh, Pentagon speak, you know, uh, kind of, you know, double speak for UFOs, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Come on, UFOs, folks. Um, There are some very interesting quotes in those. So do you want to kind of, Give us some some of this flavor as to how this is being responded to. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I gave these actually at the Alt Propulsion Conference, and I'm I'm happy to talk about that later. But I put these reports together so that I could kind of run through some of the bullet points. And I, I think one of the issues is um, 
you know, it, it's like drinking from the firehouse. I, I mean, so, <laughs> excuse me, the first one was, uh, I, I'll just run through kind of notes on it. So again, this was a nine page report with only about five pages of real content. It was summaries and conclusions, not details. And they used a lot of qualifiers and softeners, which isn't surprising, right? This is the CYA stuff. They're trying to cover <laughs> their butts, so to speak, yep. you know? That, and so instead of saying, you know, it's a UFO, they're saying it's a possible, you know, it's possible this, possible that. You have to kind of read through that and, and look at it like any corporate or government type report, you know? Um, that being said, I mean, you know, also the, it was limited in scope and, and you, could, you could make numerous cases for this. Maybe it's because of the cover-up. Maybe it's just because they only had six months to put it together and they had – my understanding was the CIA and the Air Force didn't want to give them the info that they needed to finish it. So um, they only covered incidents between 2004 and this year. Um, they, they did mention, and this was interesting, the majority of incidents happened in the last two years, which they attributed to better reporting. So in terms of reports, the last two years are the busiest. And what that means is this, this UFO activity, right, this military UFO activity is on an upswing, right? Um, so this is current, very contemporary. They had 144 reports from government sources. 80 of those involved observation with multiple sensors. And they described that, right? So multiple sensors could be, I mean, you're, you're talking about you could have a visual you know, sighting along with radar sighting, along with infrared, you know, it could be, I mean, they, they had four or five different types of sensor systems they mentioned. And on some of these, they captured on, on several at once. Um, so again, they, they had qualifiers in here, but they, they said that UAPs, these UFOs are physical objects. Most of the UAP reported probably do represent physical objects given that a majority of UAP were registered across multiple sensors, including radar, infrared, electro-optical, weapon seekers, and visual observation. So again, lots of qualifiers, lots of softers in there, but they're saying, look, these are real, these are real physical things. Um, you know, they also said there were probably multiple types of UAPs, um, and that's because there were lots of different photos. They identified one of those photos as a helium balloon, you know, surprising. Uh, I'll but. tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura, founder of American Anti-Gravity. I think one of the first breakthroughs to come out of these hearings is the absolute multi-sensor verification by, again, the most trusted institution right now in American society, the military, the Defense Department, the Pentagon the men and women serving in the armed forces, in this case, the Navy. The first thing which is going to fall out of these hearings is going to be the reality of a technology which can control gravity. And as you're going to hear, in terms of big picture in the rest of our conversation this morning, if you can control gravity, you control everything. And I mean everything, including the energies to save the Earth. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, July 11th, 2021. 7 11. I mean, you realize that Branson chose 7-Eleven to launch into space? And why is that significant? Because seven, of course, is seven symmetry spins of the tetrahedron, which is the foundation of the hyperdimensional model. And 11, well, 11 is a mathematical derivation, ultimately, when you go through the equation of 19.5, which is, of course, a circumscribed tetrahedron or a tetrahedral force pattern inside stars and planets, which give us unlimited energy from higher dimensions without an environmental cost. Why did Branson choose to go to space on 7-Eleven? Gosh, maybe someday I'll get a chance to ask. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura. We're talking about the breakthrough, political breakthrough, which is represented by this uh, DNI report to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is prescinding to hearing sometime, I'm thinking sometime in the fall. And again, for those that may have missed it the first or second or 20th time, I don't care what is said by the intelligence community or even by the witnesses at these first hearings, because the very fact of the hearings themselves on unidentified aerial vehicles painted by multiple state-of-the-art military sensors on which we depend for our national security day and night, that in and of itself will be such a statement to the American people and to the world as to the reality of a technology that controlled gravity. We will be in a whole new paradigm with that first hearing. In fact, we might even be in that new paradigm, I believe, right now. What do you think? Yeah. Well, Richard, let me read you something from a paper. And again, I, I've been researching this diligently, trying to collect all the relevant you know, data points that I can on this. So this was a paper called Estimating Flight Characteristics of Anonymous Unidentified Aerial Vehicles. It was written by three physicists, Kevin Newth, Robert Powell, and Peter Reale. And, uh, they were from Scientific Coalition for, U, for UAP Studies, right? So it's, it's a great paper. Uh, there's a link in that in the, uh, the PowerPoint that I sent you. But the, the quote that jumped Are out Are we me, talking number two or number three in your items? 
uh, well, so this is on the UAP news, July. Oh, 10th. so that's item so, number three. Yeah, I, I'm skipping around a little bit. No problem. Some of the stuff, you know, some of the stuff is a little bit dull, but I, I think this one really goes to Tim. You were Tim, about Tim, birth. Tim. Nothing about this is dull. This is the revolution with a capital R. Well, so what they said when they when they analyzed the, the UAP footage, right? And this is the you know this is the, the government UAP footage that was linked by Melanie Elizondo and, and further you know later confirmed by the government. They wrote, quote unquote. Estimated accelerations range from almost 100 G to thousands of Gs. Oh, good grief. With no observed air disturbance, <laughs> no sonic booms, and no evidence of excessive heat commensurate with even minimal estimated energies. The number and quality of witnesses, the variety of roles they played in the encounters, and the equipment used to track and record the craft favor the latter hypothesis that these are indeed technologically advanced craft, right? So, so that's, that's talk about one. understatement. <laughs> they also wrote, and this is, and again, this is in the PowerPoint that I sent you. Furthermore, these craft appear to violate the laws of physics in that they don't have flight or control surfaces, any visible means of propulsion, apparently violating Newton's third law and can operate in multiple media, such as space, air, and water without apparent hindrance, sonic booms, or heat dumps. So that's, I mean... And there that, are serious that, people, Tim, who are claiming these are Russian or Chinese. Look, if these are Russian or Chinese, we'd be speaking Russian or Chinese tonight. Yeah, well, so, and again, this is a serious scientific paper. And now they, they also wrote, again, I'm skipping around a little bit in my slides here, but these are all up there if, if your listeners want to read through it. They, they, they further wrote in this paper, the observed flight characteristics of these craft are consistent with flight characteristics required for interstellar travel, i.e., if these observed accelerations were sustainable in space, these craft could easily reach relativistic speeds within a matter of minutes to hours and cover interstellar distances in a matter of days to weeks. Just for the sake of comparison, I happen to have this number on my mind. If you were to take a spacecraft, and we'll assume fuel is no problem, let's just assume it's an old-fashioned rocket, and let's say a fusion rocket, hydrogen fusion, and you can maintain 1G thrust, which is the gravity acceleration 32 feet per second per second that we're sitting uh, in our respective chairs separated by many states here tonight, it would take you a year, one Earth year, to go from a standing start to the speed of light, uh, you know, relativistic corrections notwithstanding. They're saying that the observed technology by the Navy can literally get to the speed of light in seconds, seconds. And there are serious people claiming, oh, it's the Russians or Chinese. Give me a break. Well, so, so a fellow named Marit von Renenkamp was uh, interviewed by the Guardian, Guardian, sorry. And Which what is he this, said the was, major, major British paper. Yeah. And he said, China has well-documented issues with basic jet engines. They rely on espionage to develop their most advanced weapon systems. So I struggle with China having developed this. <laughs> then he, he further said, 
Russia has a defense budget that is a fraction of the United States, and much of its military infrastructure is crumbling. So well, wait, 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 wait. That their whole th- budget is the equivalent of New York State or Texas. Their whole federal budget for Russia is that of one state of the United States of America, or if you want to be international, let's say Italy. So their defense budget is a fraction of that. So we're talking a fraction of a state U.S. budget for all of their defense needs. We are the 800-pound gorilla. Russia, except for nuclear weapons, which are very deadly, is, 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 is a you know, featherweight in this game. The idea that they've developed controlled anti-gravity and there's still this third-rate power, no way. Yeah, I, I, I don't see that as plausible. And again, that was why when the June 25th report came out, for me, it said enough. It said UFOs are real, and it said you know, they demonstrate advanced characteristics that we can't replicate. Well, see, that's where the independence line comes in. Remember the movie Independence Day when when they're on on Air Force One and, uh, you know, uh, I forget what his name's uh, Benjamin. What's his name's father says, you know, you've got six hundred dollar toilet seats and you've got all this stuff stashed there in Area 51. And uh, the uh, the president says, oh, that's just rumors. And the secretary of defense says. Well, Mr. President, that's not quite true. There has been a sub rosa, incredibly intensive black research project in the development of anti-gravity as part of the deep state, the secret government, whatever you want to call it, for decades, going back to T. Townsend Brown. The problem with bringing that deep black research and development into the Nimitz or Uh, Teddy Roosevelt arena with Navy pilots seeing these things splitting around, does it make sense to develop an incredibly black ops technology and then parade it over the battle fleets of ordinary sailors and non-coms and officers and captains of of the battle fleets? Of course not. So you can exclude that it's our stuff that is being looked at in the UAP videos which have been released. Well, and and furthermore, and one of the things, and this was in the report, they had said it's a flight safety issue, right? At the very least, it's a flight safety issue. Meaning, meaning, meaning. Well, I mean, so if, if you're if you're in an area, right, I mean, Kevin Day, who did the radar reports, one of the things he'd said was one of the reasons they investigated it was he had anomalous objects on his radar in their training space, right? And this is the space that they delegate for these jets to fly in. He said, okay, well, look, there's something there. This could cause an accident. So, you know, for for this to be some kind of American technology, and to me, that's that's a bridge too far. I mean, to begin with, I, I struggle to believe that we could develop something like this. This is too far outside of known technology. You know? Now, that's, that's just me. A lot of people disagree with me that the Black Project conspiracy world is, you know, that, that well, those theories see, I will, I, I will disagree because I think we've developed this. I just think it's so top secret and deep, deep, deep black that you're not going to parade it around an ordinary you know, naval fleet where everybody can see it. 
you know, it's logically illogical, Mr. Spock. You don't do that if you're trying to keep the most important technological revolution in history secret. You don't demonstrate it to ordinary sailors and airmen, et cetera, et cetera. It, well, and, and I, I think, you know, from taking, again, playing the devil's advocate there, um, one of the things I've heard, and if I was to buy into this, I would probably buy into it this way, was they've said the Tic Tac is some kind of ET and the black triangles are ours, you know, and that's why they look different. And that's why the black triangles look more human built, right? They've, you know, they're, I mean, they're not smooth. They've got, you know, protrusions, they've got lights on them, stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. so, it, you know, if, if I was, if I was going down that road, I would probably subscribe to that theory and say the black triangles are ours, you know? Um, it, it, and I guess that does make sense in, in some sort of way. Uh, it's difficult for me to believe that there would be so many, I, I guess, so much variation, you know? I mean, be, because the other thing is to say, okay, well, we've got black triangles and Tic Tacs, this thing. Are, is that the same alien race or is it, you know, is it not just that we're being visited, but we're like a tourist stop? I don't know. I, I, I struggle with that to some degree. Well, you have to also consider the idea of, of the breakaways. You know what I mean by the breakaways, right? Uh, well, can you describe that for me? Yeah, this is the Dolan model, Richard Dolan, who proposed years ago that the Nazis who were working on anti-gravity at the end of World War II, a whole bunch of them left, having successfully achieved, you know, the technology, and they're out there somewhere, and they've had 75-plus years to develop an independent, parallel, breakaway civilization, and who knows what kind of technological refinements in Mark one, Mark two, Mark three, they could have made in 75 years, given what they were doing at the end of the war, according to certain research documents, which came to light uh, out of Czechoslovakia and other Eastern European places uh, when the uh, uh, Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed. So you've got these multiple possibilities. The breakaways would be humans from Earth, Nazis, if you will. And they've had 75 years to develop an independent culture, technology, civilization. One of my potential models, very speculative, is they're trying to come home. They want to own Earth, the, the Fourth Reich, that kind of thing. World War II for them never ended. And some of what we're seeing in current geopolitical developments, like COVID-19, is part of their, you know, initiative to take control of Earth. And they would be the ones who would want to demonstrate in a power display uh, that would be irresistible. Look, we have this technology. We can do this, this, and this. Your F-18s can do nothing against us. In other words, they're trying to win the war without having the war. Again, highly speculative, but I, need, I think we need to put it on the board. Well, you know, and I, I guess there's another aspect of this, too, which is not surprising. This is the military doing all these reports um, that UAPs may be a threat, right? And, and I think oh, let me stop the you there, because the thing that caught my eye in the first paragraph of the DNI report, everything else in the nine pages or five or six pages is qualified. Potential, possible, maybe threat is mentioned in that first paragraph three times 
with zero qualifiers, zero. Well, and again, I mean, coming out of the Guardian, and this is this was a response to the classified report, which I haven't seen. I don't know if anybody outside of Congress has, but um, again, the, in the Guardian, it was written. A group of senior American politicians have warned that UFOs pose national security concerns after getting a confidential briefing. Clearly, quote unquote, clearly something's going on that we can't handle, said Tim Burchett, Republican congressman from Tennessee. So, I mean, that could mean a lot of different things. Now, I, I don't know. There is. I don't know if you want me to burn through some more of these quotes. Yeah, but, but no, no, no. This is hard data. This is good analysis. Keep going. Well, so there, there are a few more that, that, for me, raise eyebrows. And again, I guess you have to remember where these are kind of coming from. But, but so UAPs have new, they have an interest in our nuclear devices, right? And we're talking ships, submarines, uh, nuclear weapons, nuclear power plants. They're interested in nukes. And, and so um, Tom Rogan in the Washington Examiner he, he wrote, as I've reported, the Navy is front and center for a simple reason. It's nuclear platforms keep attracting UFOs, right? Because the Navy has lots of nukes. So he said UFOs in the late 1940s tend to appear near military weapon sites and nuclear-powered platforms, such as aircraft carriers and submarines. Um, now, Luis Elizondo, right, who, again, was one of the folks who – he was part of ATIP, and he helped leak those videos, said – UAPs have been observed at U.S. nuclear sites as well as sites all over the globe. He, he, he said, quote, unquote, there does seem to be some sort of congruency or intersection between UAP or UFO sightings and our nuclear technology, whether that be propulsion, power generation, or nuclear weapons systems. And he said, furthermore, these observations have been made overseas in other countries. They've had the same incidents so that tells us this is a global issue. Uh, now, so that, that's, that's kind of what he'd written. I have a couple more about this as well. A um, couple of instances of this that have been documented. There may be more that we don't know about. But uh, on October 4th, 1982, near the Ukrainian town of Bialokorovich, when a disc-shaped UFO apparently hovered over a nuclear missile base for an extended period, during the encounter, a number of nuclear missiles activated without authorization from Moscow. So, so that was again, that was in Russia, and that was reported from them at a U.S. Air Force base in Minot, North Dakota, in 1968. An object was sighted over a number of Minuteman missile silos. As it flew over them, uh, the electronic consoles began acting strangely, and crew members had to hit the inhibit switch because launch and progress indicators had been activated. So those those both came from a fellow named Robert Hastings, who investigated the UFO nuclear connection. So another one came from Frank Milburn, again, who did a lot of research, and he wrote the Pentagon's UAP Task Force, which is uh, that's available online as a PDF. He he wrote one particularly alarming concern claim concerns the destruction in flight of an ICBM by a UFO. Another serious consideration is the possibility of accidental nuclear war through misinterpretation of UFO data. So there, there's some strange stuff going on there. There is an association with our nuclear vehicles and stockpiles. Well, let me tell you a story, because many, many years ago, when uh, my good friend G. Harry Stein was still alive, he wrote uh, novels and short stories under the 
pen name uh, Lee Corey. Uh, Harry and I got to be really good friends. This is when I was in the museum in Springfield. He lived in New Canaan, Connecticut. When I was going to and from New York, you know, his house represented a nice pit stop, both going in and coming out. So we spent a lot of time. He had been at White Sands as part of um, the Martin Company, which was an aerospace company back then, which got the contract to develop the Vanguard rocket and uh, uh, first satellite for the U.S. Navy. Um, he uh, saw in during some of the launches out of White Sands, what they would do <clears throat> is they would launch these, uh, uh, you know, borrowed from the Nazis V-2 rockets, von Braun and his team, and then the contractors would be part of the extended aerospace development uh, uh, team that would, you know, do the prepping, the fueling, uh, launch site preparation, all of that. <clears throat> and so Harry was there, and he said well, during one launch of the V2, and and or was it a it was the, they had two programs. They had the initial V2s from that were brought over from Operation Paperclip, and then there was a subsequent Navy program called the Viking Rocket Program, differentiated from the Viking landers on Mars decades later. During the Viking program, I'm remembering it now, he was part of the contractor team that helped develop at uh, at Martin the uh, uh, Viking rocket, which was, you know, a basically a sounding rocket, very big development of technology beyond the, uh, the uh, V2s. Anyway, during one launch, he is on the range monitoring the launch with what's called a range theodolite, which is basically a telescope which is calibrated so you can read angle of azimuth elevation above the horizon and, you know, I'm sorry, uh, uh, azimuth is left and right uh, from north and elevation is above the horizon. He's looking at the Viking rocket accelerating from the launch pad uh, in, the, in the boost phase through the theodolite and suddenly into the field of view of this automatic tracking theodolite telescope, he sees a disc-shaped UFO swoop in and literally do circles, loop-de-loops, around the Viking rocket as it's ascending from White Sands, which is just a few miles south of me here in uh, New Mexico. And it made him an instant believer that we were not alone that somebody out there was monitoring our stuff, particularly our military stuff. So this is very, very, very old in the history of UFOs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, I would say that it creates, it raises more questions than it answers, right? But, well, like, um, who are they? Who's doing the monitoring? Well, so, so let, me, let me give you a quote from the head of NASA, uh, NASA's new chief, Bill Nelson. Uh, he said to CNN, we don't know, again, this is quotes, we don't know if it's extraterrestrial. We don't know if it's an enemy. We don't know if it's an optical phenomena. He said, we don't think it's an optical phenomena because of the characteristics those Navy jet pilots described. And the bottom line is we want to know. So that's the head of NASA. The current head of NASA, Senator Bill Nelson. Yeah. Who, by the way, flew on the shuttle in one of the uh... – uh, flights of, of Columbia many, many years ago. He was one of the first civilians to fly in the NASA program on the uh, space shuttle. 
Ad was just well, before Challenger, by the way. You know, it's it's interesting too. I mean, China is studying this. China actually has their own UAP task force, and they, in fact, they were. This was. I, I won't read the quote, but it was in the South China Morning Post. If you're if you're uh, Listeners, you know, they look it up. Uh, they have so many sightings, they're looking at using some kind of an AI system to sort out which ones are likely to be real. So they've got more sightings in China than we do in the U.S. Um, Japan is investigating this. The French Space Agency investigated it. Now, what was interesting is the French Space Agency, they just wrapped up a big investigation out of two, 2,923 cases 3.4% were unexplained, right? They couldn't explain those away. Russia had an organization, started back in 1977, and they ran for several years. Um, they investigated around 3,000. They claimed about 5 to 10% of all cases couldn't be explained. So it's and, – and I guess the, the thing that I'm struggling with, and I think a lot of us are going to struggle with this, is the UAP sightings – again, this starts in 2004 – it's created kind of a bifurcation where what the military is talking about, at least right now, is 2004 to present. But we know that this phenomenon goes back a lot longer than that. And then we're not sure how much longer. Right? Let, me, Maybe let, me, let me stop you there because that's, you raise a very interesting point. In, in, in reading the DNI report, the Director of National Intelligence, which is this office set up after 9-11 to coordinate um, – the intelligence to the president from 17 different intelligence agencies. Good grief. Talk about bureaucracy. Talk about government inefficiency. Can you imagine trying to sort through 17 different agency reports to get what's, what's signal and what's noise? Anyway, so the DNI office is supposed to do that. When I read that report, the thing that, that really struck me is, again, that first paragraph where they talk about the threat. Not potential, not possible. They simply said the threat of. Well, to have a threat, you've got to have an adversary. If you're not considering ETs to be the adversary, and you're not really considering China or Russia to be adversaries or Iran, because as you said, the backward nature of, of, of our adversaries right now in terms of conventional technology, then what's left? I come back to the Emily Dickinson perspective, you know, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Are they talking in veiled terms about the breakaways? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, you know, what, what does strike me as interesting, and I guess this, this might sound a little conspiratorial, but I did hear someone say, I don't remember where it was, but I, I do recall on a radio show or something like that, somebody said a while ago um, UFOs would make a comeback after a war in the Middle East. They said that you know the, the government always has to have a threat, right? They said that's the next one. They said after the Middle East thing wraps up, then it'll be aliens. And I remember at the time hearing or reading that, I remember thinking to myself, yeah, right, yeah, right. You know, but here we are. I mean, we're pulling in Afghanistan, and at the same time, you know, we're, we're reading about alien threat, I guess. So, you know, that brings a very interesting thing. And we're coming uh, down to the bottom of the hour. So I want to pick this up on the other side. But I've been watching this incredible precipitous departure from Afghanistan in a way which is as messy 
certainly for our interpreters and all the Afghan folks that helped us for that 20-year war. It's as messy as our departure from Vietnam. It's like we learned nothing. We're leaving these people in the, in the, in the lurch, in the dust. That's not what we should be doing. And so why are we precipitously leaving? Is it possible that there is some other factor, part of this extraterrestrial equation, the UAP phenomenon? We are responding to some kind of orders from someone on high, get out, or, again, just kind of putting that out there. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura. And we're exploring the big picture implications of the official U.S. government stance now that UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, they are real. And what is that going to usher in? God only knows. We shall return. of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. everyone on this Sunday night, July 11th, 2021. We're talking about the UAP report from the defense, uh, I'm sorry, the director of national intelligence, the potential for hearings in the Senate and House intelligence committees, and what this is going to do to the whole idea of extraordinarily advanced technologies. Um, I presume, Tim, you've got some more analyses to present, right? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I think I burned through probably all of my best quotes, but, um, well, I, I guess what should I touch on? I guess that would be where I would, where I would start. 
Well, I've seen very little analysis uh, from the Navy. You know, there's been basically the videos, the FLIR videos. There's been the commentary. There's that that um, uh, 60 Minutes interview with, you know, a couple of the pilots. But I haven't really heard numbers as to the extraordinary nature of the technology. What I'm really looking forward to, if they do nothing else in these hearings, that they simply lay out these numbers like vehicles moving at a thousand G's, which would obviously smear any human pilots, you know, into a thin gelatinous you know, layer all over the inside of the cockpit. I mean, right there, how anyone with a straight face can maintain this is some adversarial secret technology that the Russians or the Chinese or Iran are using to tool around, you know, U.S. carrier battle groups. I mean, the whole thing on its face is ludicrous. But Washington is the seat of a lot of ludicrous positions. So maybe there are folks that uh, will actually buy the idea that these are secret Chinese weapons. Yeah, well, I, I think you're raising an important point, right? And so and those kind of G-forces are not practical unless you've got inertial modification, right? Like if you can, if you can nullify inertia, um, then you can get around that. But if you're, if you're using any kind of a conventional aircraft or rocket or anything like that, those, I mean, not only would those G-forces liquefy a pilot, but they would destroy an airframe itself. So, you know, the, the problem is, um, and again, these crafts don't, they don't just move linearly, right? You can't just write this off and say, well, it's some hypersonic this or hypersonic that, which is, you know, that's what the top of the line Russian missiles are working towards is they want to be able to fly two, three times as fast as the older missiles could. Okay, well, that's all well and good, but they can't do a U-turn at that speed, and UAPs can. And that's the difference. The difference is the kind of maneuverability they have. You know, another thing that your hypersonic missile can't do is it can't be flying along with these enormous speeds and dip into the water. And I was just going to say, you remember that wonderful, because it's so camp, it's kind of wonderful um, uh, television show, A Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And, and they had this little flying vehicle that they would, you know, move out from an airlock under the bottom of the uh, sea view, this huge re- ultra, you know, research nuclear powered submarine. And it was, you know, the flying sub or whatever, and it would depart and then it would leave the water and it would fly to like New York and then it would come back. And then at full speed, it would dive into the water. Now, Erwin Allen, you know, was a genius when it came to writing imaginative fiction. But, of course, technologically, that was dumb. That was stupid. That was, you know, the thing would basically splinter into a, a zillion pieces if you tried that. These yeah. craft well, are doing this routinely and then moving underwater at hundreds of miles per hour as tracked by sonar. And, again, any country on Earth that had this technological capability in hand as a developed technology would own the planet. Well, exactly. Yeah. And you're, you're touching on another very large subject and it's been speculated that UAPs are using the ocean to hide, right? I mean, the the ocean covers 70% of the earth's surface 
And we do have submarines and, and listening devices and all sorts of military stuff out there to detect and deter. You, you know, the social network in the North but, Atlantic comes to mind. Yeah, but at the same time, the ocean is pretty much the perfect place. And and again, speaking from a, a somewhat paranoid perspective, one of the things that got me, that, that still troubles me, is um, when you look at where these sightings happen, right, like a, a hotbed of these sightings is Catalina Island. Well, Catalina Island is right off the coast of Southern California. So if you are, if you're some kind of a UFO or something like that, um, hiding in the water there gives you ready access to an enormous population center, but keeps you, I mean, you know, it prevents them from coming back to you, right? As opposed to something like a mountain, you know, a mountain, people can drive there, they can fly a plane, a woods, people can drive there, they can fly a plane, you know, people, people have access to it, but the ocean, especially if you're underneath it, who knows? So, you know, the same thing I believe was on the East coast. I believe that was, uh, you know, off the coast of a major population center. It does, it does give me pause, I guess. It makes me wonder a bit about, about motive and intent, which I think we haven't really determined yet. See, I think that's an important point because I, as you have been privy to all these stories going back decades, grays, you know, abductions, um, I was uh, <clears throat> very fortunate to uh, have had a chance to spend time decades ago back in, uh, I think it was 60, 65 or 66 with uh, Betty and Barney Hill. And I was the first one to realize, I believe, the significance of the 3D star map that Betty described during one of their, their abductions where they were shown or she was shown a star map. And the captain or the head of the uh, crew on the on the uh, uh, vehicle that they were on uh, asked her if she could identify where they, meaning the sun, the solar system, were on the map. And I took that little nugget and I called uh, someone that I had just barely met by the name of uh, Alan Hynek. And that was the uh, spur for him to come east and to... Uh, together with a professional psychologist to have Betty and Barney Hill uh, hypnotized and regressed and have Betty draw the star map under hypnotic regression. And then there were articles and I think Sky and Telescope ran a feature on it or whatever, but that came out of my almost chance discussion with Betty that night about some of the things that they saw in this craft which in 65 were light years ahead of anything uh, in either the, you know, open aerospace community or even in the so-called uh, uh, deep black world of top secret projects. Well, so I, I guess I would, I would ask you then what your thoughts are on, and again, this, this goes to this bifurcation between our modern story of UAPs, right? We're talking glowing orbs and what looks like glowing propane tanks, big oversized ones. That's the modern story versus this incredible history of UFO sightings. I mean, again, you know, I mean, there are Renaissance paintings, it looks like. Um, you've got even Egyptian hieroglyphs may have them in it. So we've got this really long history of mythology. We're not sure what's true and what's not there. Do you well, think that the grays are real? 
do you think that we're dealing with a physical bipedal humanoid? I don't know because I do know that uh, psychological manipulation, deep hypnosis, I mean, the astronauts were on the moon, right? We had many, many crews on the moon and in orbit. Not one of them remembers a stunning set of artifacts they saw on the moon. I had a debate, uh, you know, bringing back Art Bell with uh, Ed Mitchell on Art's show one night, three hours. And uh, while Mitchell, you know, was so redolently uh, effusive on the idea of UFOs and, and Roswell and all that, where, of course, he never was, uh, he was on the moon where there are all kinds of ET artifacts, real physical things that we can see in the imagery, and he didn't remember anything about those. And uh, I believe this is an example of mind control, a technology which was developed, again, by the Germans, by the Nazis in World War II that basically can plant or alter human memory and can wipe out experience and basically um, uh, inculcate a script. Um, And Mitchell himself, kind of a witness to that. And then I went looking for other astronauts and their commentaries on their experiences on the moon. And I found a common, a common commonality that I put in uh, uh, dark mission because it seems that all of them had had their minds tampered with in a way that almost was like the original impressions and sensorium and experiences had been suppressed and a synthetic script had been overlaid where they could tell you timeline chapter and verse we did this we went to station number five we took out the tongs we loaded up samples we did the drills all that stuff but mitchell himself said he was at a public event and some kid 11 12 years old whatever stood up and said um um dr mitchell what did it feel like to walk on the moon And he started to answer, and then he stopped. And he wrote about this later in one of his books called The Way of the Explorer. Just Google that, Ed Mitchell, Way of the Explorer, because he said he suddenly had this shocking realization that whereas he could remember all the stupid metonymic stuff, the experiments, the equipment, the traverses, the geology and all that, He could not remember, he could not get in touch with what it felt like to be at the peak experience of his life, of his career, um, a human being walking on the moon. And it so bothered him and increasingly bothered him that ultimately he wound up seeking professional psychological assistance And I know the players. I know who was involved. I I can't talk about it tonight. I know what the sessions read out like. And every time the hypnotherapist tried to get him to get in touch with the experience, he would say things like, oh, that's not important. We don't have to go there. You know, deferral, deferral, deferral. And it, it became a block that they could not with the best terrestrial psychological techniques in the 1970s and I guess maybe into the 80s ever get around 
Ed Mitchell never could remember and could never get in touch with what it felt like, which means the block much better than any current terrestrial mind control or psychoactive drug technology that's available to the intelligence agencies, not just of the U.S., but of any nation on the planet, which makes me wonder what was applied to these astronauts to where they could not remember what is really there if they had simply looked. That's an excellent, it's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. Um, which means I mean, it's, all these stories of abductions and gray aliens and body part examinations and all that, they all could be synthetic forced memories conditioned, programmed to basically build a wall between human beings and what's really out there or who is really out there. In other words, to keep us separated as prisoners here on uh, you know, the prison planet Earth, to kind of misquote uh, Alex Jones. You guys do know that the Navy filed a patent for an electropropulsion system to let you do all the things you guys just discussed about flying at thousands of miles an hour, not only through the air but under the water, and make 90-degree right-angle turns at full speed because of the gates inertia, right? I'm familiar with, with the fact this was stated. I don't know the details. Yeah, right. and in fact, I, I know the I yeah you're talking the Salvatore Pace patents, right? Right, and we've yeah. got Bob Lazar with the Element 115, the A-wave, well, B-wave phase. Oh, I think the got, Element 15 is all all disinformation. That's that's not how yeah, that's, the physics and anti gravity really works. Anyway, Tim, pick up on this Navy patent because this has been something I've wanted to have time to look at. Never had the time. Keith bringing it up tonight is the perfect time. So what is it? How is it supposed to work? And has the Navy produced any vehicles? Um, so with the Salvador Pace patents, and I believe he's calling it the Pace effect, he had, a, he had many different patents that he filed. Um, he made a lot of claims. Uh, some of those claims haven't been substantiated, so it's difficult to tell. Um, when, I, you, you know, when, I, you say, sorry to interrupt, when you say Pace, do you mean a guy by the name of Pace, Pace P-A-C-E? Uh, no, P-A-I-S, uh, ah, Salvatore okay. Pace. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he has been filing these patents. And, and, and who is Salvador Pace? Well, he, he, he works for he works for the Navy. He's one of their researchers. Um, it looks like he's been doing these kind of with the blessing of his command. They, they kind of let him do it for quite a while. Is now, he a I, civilian I, contractor or a Navy personnel? I believe he's Navy personnel, and they actually did. Um, they they did get some funding. They built a couple of demos. If if you go online, you have to dig a little bit, but you can Google it. Is this at um, the Naval Research Laboratory south of Washington? I believe so, but I'm a little fuzzy on it. Um, but the, the long and the short of it is, um, you know, I mean, he maintains that all of this kind of came from his own head. Um, it, it seems like, I mean, the, the impression that I get is that he, basically he had a really nice commanding officer who just kind of let him, let him file the patents. That's the story at least. And, um, I know recently because I've talked to him and he'd said, um, they, they've clamped down, you know, and I would assume it's because of this UAP thing, right? 
it, but his story was that, you know, he, he has new commanding officer and um, they've decided that they're, they're creating a little bit too much noise, getting too much publicity with these patents. And so they've, they've kind of asked him to keep a low profile for a while. So uh, you can kind of take that for what it's worth um, simply because he's in the Navy and filing patents. I, I don't necessarily consider them any more valid than anyone else's. Well, the obvious question is, has anybody built hardware? Well, again, they did one test. They, they, you know, they did build some hardware. They, when you they say they, you mean the, you mean the U.S. Navy? Yeah. Well, yeah. His his team. They built a test to to you know, and if you Google it, they've got they've got their experiment up there, and I, I, they had what they thought was maybe a potential result. But um, from what I understand, the patent office was going to deny it until one of his superior officers went in and said, "Grant a patent. We have a working prototype." Is that uh, just a law, a figment that uh, didn't really occur. That, yeah, I mean, I've never heard that, but it, it's it's possible, but I've never heard that. Do we have a link, Keith, to anything that's real, that's tangible, like like the patent itself? Because we need to put that up, if we do, probably in uh, Tim's section tonight. Pay attention. Keith will send you the link if he's got it. Do you? Yes, there's a whole bunch of them out there. Okay, then, so, then give that to Keith. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I guess my my takeaway on it has been, and you know, and I, I've looked into this a lot, but you know, it's been a while. Um, uh, you know, from from talking with the guy and from everything I've kind of researched there, it seems like he's he's an innovator, right? He he's trying to he's trying to come up with new ideas. Seems like his heart is in the right place. Um, it doesn't seem particularly nefarious, from what I can from everything I can tell. He's not really getting results. It's just he's kind of coming up with these ideas and saying, based on what I know, this should produce this effect. Okay, well, that's... Do you know enough about this, either one of you, uh, to describe how it might work? What the the theoretical foundation for control of gravity is in in this patent? Uh, Yes, he's he's using microwaves. So it's like the the M drive, in in a way? Um. According to what the diagrams show, somehow they're using sending the microwaves down an outer uh, channel around the outside of the craft, not outside, but between the inner inner core of the craft and the outer wall of the craft. And somehow this creates uh, the uh, propulsion system. Uh, I haven't got all the details because the patent doesn't get into enough to really figure out exactly what's going on. But it, that's exactly what they're using. They're using microwave. Yeah, but isn't the reason for a patent that you publish enough detail so that someone else can duplicate the piece of technology you're claiming to have invented? How can you well, have a patent if there's not enough information to replicate what it's claiming it represents? In, in theory, but, but in practice, especially when you're talking about propulsion, the the patent office is littered with propulsion patents that have never been built, never been tested. So they're, they're interesting. You know, again, the, I mean, my community collects them. We've got lots and lots of them floating around. Um, most of them have never been built or, or a prototype was built and had mixed results. So, you know, patents by themselves. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I know with the, with the Navy patents, it, it's one of those things where it raises a lot of eyebrows. There are a lot of unknowns, but personally, I, I don't consider that to, to demonstrate anything other than one 
you know, very active, engaged person who's who th- you know thinks he's onto something. So now it, it's well. It's uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. The reason I give this credence <laughs> is because many years ago, I was in touch with a physicist out of China Lake, which is the major naval West Coast top secret research facility located there north of Barstow in the middle of nowhere. They had a major earthquake, you know, a couple of years ago, which did all kinds of damage to the base. But they've headquartered some very unusual cutting-edge research there, including the first naval efforts to duplicate cold fusion were done by the Navy, U.S. government efforts done by the U.S. Navy at China Lake, and I was in touch with one of the physicists who was involved in the research. Then cold fusion kind of fell out of favor. These things go in cycles politically. It's back. The Navy is doing new experiments, published experiments in cold fusion. So that would be the place I would look, China Lake, to see if someone is trying to reproduce in hardware the PACE equations and patents. Yeah, yeah. And again, to the, to the best of my knowledge, that, that is all on hold right now. So the, I, I know that they did one experiment. Uh, I saw that documented. You know, and, and again, you can Google that. And with a little bit of work, you'll be able to find it. It produced very mixed, mixed results. Maybe it did something, maybe it didn't. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, everything is on hold there now. And, and I, w- I would assume that this UAP issue is probably why, you know, from a from a political perspective, it makes sense, right? You, I mean, they they're they have a lot of people looking at them right now, and so anywhere in a command position is going to try and keep a low profile until things blow over, which is pretty normal for government agencies. Yeah. See, again, I want to think big picture. I want to go up to thirty, ah, hell, fifty thousand feet. I have been aware of certain inventors Keith you'll remember you know Troy Reed remember the discussion about Troy Reed building his his free energy device which was like a huge um, uh, paddle wheel on an old paddle wheel steamer which had magnets arranged in a certain geometric configuration that the once, Reed magnetic motor that once yeah, you I... once you rotated the wooden wheel the magnets would repel and attract in a way that it would go faster and faster and faster and it would produce a net positive energy. That's what, that's what Reed, Reed claimed. Well, his additional claim was that he got the idea from a set of dreams that came to him from an unknown source. So here's my far out speculation. If in fact the human race has been artificially kept down on the farm that's the reason why ufo research has been ridiculed for decades and decades and decades because the secret of our liberation is the anti-gravity slash free energy equation to where we liberate ourselves from fossil fuels um, resource limitations of minings to making it literally out of the ether etc etc suppose there is someone out there who's able to insinuate through, shall we say, um, telepathic means, ideas in certain fertile 
inventive minds to give them ideas that can then be brought through patents to the marketplace. And there's a counterforce, which is trying to keep us suppressed, to keep us down on the farm, that keeps making it look absurd and ridiculous and drying up all the money and making the experiments fail. In other words, there is this invisible war which has been going on for decades, if not hundreds of years, between that force trying to liberate humanity and another force trying to keep us in bondage. And it's all coming to a head now. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure how to respond. I, I, I guess I would agree with the last part. It's all coming to a head now. I think, I, I think it's probably, I think it's more than fair to say whatever is going on, it's all happening now, you know. And it's interesting that it's happening after the pandemic too, you know. I, I mean, it seems like the zeitgeist has kind of shifted, you know. It, it doesn't, or at least to me, it doesn't feel like we're in the 20th century anymore feels like we're in a new century, you know? And I, I think the pandemic is kind of the turning point for that. Well, it's changed so many things like, you know, remote work, telemark, te- telework, um, you know, no longer having to commute. Major corporations looking at the efficiencies from working at home if you have childcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or school. In other words, we're looking at fundamental restructuring of some of the assumptions of society because we've been through this, you know, hell on earth for the last year and a half. Into that environment, it's kind of like people are anticipating something new, maybe in this area as well. And suddenly we have the government saying UFOs are real. Hey, we are at the uh, top of the hour, so let's hold it there. My guest this morning is Tim Ventura and uh, Keith Morgan, who is our able Uh, expert in IT and other technological subjects, and a definite expert in the field of UFOs, has joined in with a very interesting contribution having to do with this Navy patent. You are on the other side of midnight. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Ron Gervron, who I'm sure has been sitting there with bubbling ideas to add to the conversation. And uh, if you want to make a phone call or two and join us, I'll give out numbers. If you want to join the conversation, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. Now, actually, Monday morning. It is uh, July 12th, 2021. And yesterday, July 11th, 7-11, Richard Branson broke the um, democratization barrier by being the first leader to take a band of civilians to the edge of space in the uh, Virgin Galactic... uh, spacecraft unity 22 hanging under a mothership named eve after his uh, uh departed mother she died of uh, covid 19 back in january it's a shame that she's no longer with us because she would have been tickled pink to see what her son had done and the revolution that he is initiating imagine imagine his childhood imagine the kind of mother she must have been to inculcate such an open, endless questing spirit where he has conquered so many frontiers. You know, uh, Tim, I'm just wondering, at what point are the leading uh, you know, explorers, the pioneers in this civilian space revolution, when are they going to bump into the concept of the control of gravity and with their literal billion? Because it takes money, you know, the old phrase, no bucks, no buck rogers. They're literal billions. They make the transition from rockets to the basis of a real space program. Well, I think that brings up the topic of the the APEC conference. I was just going to go there. You're reading my mind. Yeah, I've been moderating that. So... I guess to, to take a long story short, um, there was a there was a, a conference called the Estes Park Conference, and there was a confluence of events, I guess, that kind of made this happen. But uh, James Woodward, right, and some of the Mox principal folks, they have this. Wait, 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 wait. You're, Hang on, you're mentioning a whole bunch of names. First of all, Estes Park is a suburb of Denver in Colorado. So, for people that don't follow all this, please identify the places, the conference, the participants, why we should care what they're doing. In other words, assume we know nothing, which in some areas I yeah. do. Well, so James Woodward has been working, uh, you know, he, he works at the University James Woodward is who? Who is James Woodward? Well, he, he's James Woodward. He's a, he, he is a, a PhD, you know, physicist who's been working on reactionless drives, uh, based on Mach's principle for several years, many years, um, yeah, I mean, 30, 40 something years. 
And they've been getting little results here and there, you know, trying to get above the noise, so to speak. So they had a big annual conference at Estes Park that they did every year. And COVID put that on hold. So rather than, rather than call the conference off, they decided, this is, I, I think, in August of 2020, something around there, they decided they were going to host this via Zoom. And so, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, Mark Sokol, went to this conference on Zoom, and in the discussion sessions, he wanted to talk about some of the garage experiments being done. And he wanted to talk about some experiments that they didn't have on their, on their docket, on their schedule. And they said, well, you know, look, we planned this thing out months ahead. We're trying to make do with what we have. So, you know, we, we, we just, we don't have the time or the space. So what he had realized at the time was he said, well, wait a minute. We've got a bunch of people who never talk to each other, right? Because there, there really aren't any good emerging propulsion conferences out there. Estes Park was small. It, it, was, it was just a few folks. He said, we have the opportunity here to leverage Zoom and do a large conference. So a few months went by. He approached me in October, and we started the Alt Propulsion Conference, the Alternative Propulsion Engineering Conference. And, uh, I mean, you can visit online. The website is altpropulsion.com, and it's just www.altpropulsion.com. Yeah, it's, it's, it's your item number one in Radio with Pictures tonight. Yeah, so – um, they asked me to moderate it, and I said, okay, you know, I, I haven't actively been doing work in this area in quite a while. You know, I stay up on it, but I, I'm not really doing anything anymore. But if you want me to moderate it, you know, be, I mean, just because people are familiar with me in that community, sure thing. So so we started doing this twice a month on a Saturday afternoon. When did you begin? And this? I was re- – uh, I think our first one was November 5th, if I remember right. Of last year. So – yeah, twenty twenty six okay. months. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so we started doing these conferences regularly, and um, the community really came together. You know, we, we've had I would say probably ninety percent of the big names in the community, and we're working on getting the other ten percent in there. Um, you know, we have not had Salvador Pace, the Navy patents. We we did have someone discuss them. It wasn't him. Um, can you put, give, me, give me just a sec? Sure, no problem. And while you're doing that, let me ask the question on the air. Is uh, Keith, is Ron with us yet? You can open your mic. Okay, sorry about that. No problem. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm here. Excellent, okay. When, 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 when uh, Tim is done doing this part, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, so stand by. Go ahead, Tim. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, so yeah, we, we started doing this all propulsion conference and we've had folks like Roger Scheuer, the EM drive he presented. Um, we've had many, many physicists, many, many engineers. And what we try and do is mix things up. So typically we'll do two or three presentations per, per conference. Right. And, and that, that ranges from, you know, physicists talking about theoretical propulsion ideas to people with engineering ideas, uh, people with community history, for instance, we had a fellow named Sandy Kidd do a presentation yesterday. Oh, he's 84 years old. God, he's a he's a veteran, yeah. an incredible pioneer in this field. He's 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 like yeah. lightweight. He's been doing rotational uh, gyroscopic stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, he presented yesterday, um, a- along with a fellow from the University of London named Remy Cornwall, who was was talking about a completely different collection of stuff. So, we have presentations, and then typically after that, then we have kind of a lab date and open discussion section. And again, Mark Sokol and and his group of colleagues. They are literally working in garages. They're building their own labs, and they're trying different experiments. And what they're doing is they're just going through this collection of experiments that we've all heard and read about, and they're trying to build each one as they go. You know? And I, I would say for the time being, we're seeing lots of failures, but we're also seeing <laughs> lots of interesting stuff. So, you know, it, it, I, I mean, I'm not going to try and pretend that it is something that it isn't, you know. Um, you know, but it, it's a. I would say it's a lot of fun. It's a great way to bring the community together. And I think one of the goals for me is it helps to document this community's history, which I think is incredibly important. You know, a lot of the folks in this community are are older, and we're we're losing we're losing that community's culture. And then we've also I think had some tragedies. Um, Mark McCandlish presented on the ARV. He presented I think last I believe it was last December. And, and unfortunately, he passed earlier this year. So, you know, one of our goals is to try and capture this information. We put the entire thing out there on YouTube. And, and the hope is, you know, people will just watch that over time. Maybe they can use that in their own experiments. So, See, so that's, that's kind of where things are with that. To me, this is so emblematic of a story that uh, John Campbell, <clears throat> who was the editor and founder of astounding science fiction that turned into analog magazine for which I wrote for many years, all kinds of science, uh, uh, cutting edge science stuff. John Campbell published a story in the 1950s and I forget who wrote the story, but it's very appropriate for the conversation tonight because the story involved a private inventor who was trying to develop an anti-gravity technology that could be worn um, on the back like a backpack, like uh, the uh, Bell Labs rocket belt, except it wasn't a rocket. It was true anti-gravity. And the story opens where uh, the inventor has been killed by the destruction uh, of himself and the device in one of his test flights But fortunately, the test flight was filmed. Remember, back in the 50s, we had film, 35 millimeter, 60 millimeter, no video. And the story revolves around this this laboratory, which which this uh, government guy has come to with these films and basically said, if you can duplicate this individual inventor who's no longer with us research, we will award you a huge fat government contract because obviously based on these films, he developed anti-gravity. It died with him. You've got to retrace what he did and figure out how he did it and do it for us. So the bulk of the story is how they work through this and that problem and this situation and that funding and that, you know, propulsion, nonlinear problem materials and all that. And ultimately, they produce a device which is about the size of a uh, uh, bed spring of an old-fashioned mattress, you know, with coils and all that. 
and it's hovering above the floor by six inches and it's humming fiercely and it's not something you can strap on your back, but it is hovering and it is anti-gravity and the punchline of the story, and I wish I could remember who wrote this, it might have been Arthur, all right, was that the the films and the inventor and the explosion and the destruction of all the data was all made up. It was all fiction by this government agency that figured the only way to get a breakthrough in anti-gravity was to demonstrate to a bunch of geniuses that somebody had done it and then had been destroyed. And all this group of geniuses had to do was recapitulate what they had done because the barrier that it was possible to do had been broken by this carefully contrived film record of the mythical individual inventor and his destruction with his own backpack machine. The reason I tell that story is because once these hearings are underway and once you have bona fide official government representatives attesting to the reality of anti-gravity spacecraft or aircraft or technologies, the money will pour in. These lab inventors will get contracts and we will be on the verge of a stunning breakthrough because the biggest problem has been the non-reality of the entire field, which is what the DNI report has now broken. Thoughts? Yeah, well, not just gravity modification, but I, I think one of the other things that comes out of UAPs is this idea that on some or many of these videos, there's there's one called the Puerto Rico UAP video that was taken by, a, it was a U.S. government, I, I believe it was a drug interdiction plane, but, um, and there was footage there that, that makes it look very much like there's gravitational lensing happening. So oh my, you I, mean I, like tractor beams and presser beams? Well, I, I, I'm actually, I'm thinking more like warp drive. So, oh. so it, it, and, and that could explain a lot. That could explain a heck of a lot, right? Like, so these Navy videos, you've got some blurriness. You've got some weird effects, you know. I mean, they, these, these, I believe, are not high-resolution originals. I, I, if, as I understand things, the originals are a lot higher res. They've been but, deliberately dumbed down, um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Said that we can travel amongst the stars. He said that we, there was a flaw in the mathematics, but they figured it out. He said, we could take E.T. home tomorrow. He said, if you've seen it on Star Wars or Star Trek, we've been there, done that, found it wasn't practical. That's the we famous got, quote from Ben Rich at the Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin many years right. ago. And he said these things are locked up in such black projects that it would take an act of God to get them released. Then Rumsfeld comes forward in 2001 and says, oh, $2.6 trillion are missing from the military budget, and we don't know where it went. <laughs> And then everybody got distracted by 9-11. The day after 9-11 occurs. Yeah. And then nobody went back to that. With that kind of money, you could build a base on the moon, base on Mars, and get the craft, build the craft to take us between all three planets. So what's really going on? Somebody's got two technologies going on, a highly advanced one, and the one that we keep riding into space on flames with. We've been burning stuff since caveman days. It's time to get into the real electromagnetic spectrum and energy generation that this universe works on. Because we don't live in a nuclear universe. 
we live in an electromagnetic universe, and that's what they're going to discover. So we are ignoring the fact that Ben Rich said that. We're ignoring that Jesse Marcel Sr. told us, hey, it was a craft that crashed. We are ignoring all the things that have been going on because people don't want to believe. But now we're at the point where they got to wake up and come into the 21st century because we may be in the 21st century, but they're still thinking with 13th century mentality. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is a well, perfect segue. I, I think, go ahead, Jim. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, and I think it would be, and if this goes to hearings, hopefully, you know, it would be nice to to have someone stand up and say, what what did Ben Rich mean when he said that? You know, I, I, I mean, I think I think that somebody should stand up and say, well, you know, what did he, I mean, yeah, I, I've heard that quote as well. And it raises more questions. I mean, it doesn't offer any answers. It raises lots of questions. You know, if we have the technology to take ET home with, was that Ben Rich? Was that him like BSing? Was he trying to pretend like he had something he didn't have, or, or do we truly have that technology? And and if so, is that mixed up with this UAP stuff, or is that something else? Well, right? so, I keep bringing up the model during the Watergate hearings, the infamous Watergate hearings, which changed how we, the American people, voters, viewed the presidency, and led to Nixon's resignation before his impeachment. And those hearings, when Sam Irvine conducted those hearings, there was a guy that no one had ever heard of named Alexander Butterfield. And in open hearings, he blurted out that Nixon had a uh, taping system in the Oval Office. That changed history. If we get these hearings, and I think it's, uh, you know, odds on dollars to Navy Beans, we're going to get hearings. And they'll be televised. They'll be live They might even be in prime time because of the intense public interest. Hell, the U.S. government is saying UFOs are real. How could they not put them on in prime time? Look at all the mainstream stories up to and including detailed stories in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the networks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have hearings, all it takes is one guy. And we now know from our legal side that whatever is said in the hearings from the NDAs, these guys have all signed, they cannot be sued. They cannot be brought up on charges for admitting classified stuff in a formal uh, congressional hearing, period. So it's going to be, again, Katie bar the door. This is the entree to all kinds of revelations, and it will not be controlled. It will not be controllable which is why I think we're on the verge of a stunning acceleration in human technological development, which is the great segue to Ron Gerbron, who is our resident generalist. Ron, you've been listening. What are your thoughts? Well, I've got a uh, huge bubbling list here. <laughs> uh, no, I, actually only a couple things. I, just let me get uh, toss something in because it's it's – what you were talking about earlier, but when you were talking about patents, uh, it is not unusual to uh, have intentional flaws in a patent so that people can't simply get the patent, which is freely available to anybody unless it's you know sequestered somewhere, uh, and copy the the thing, whatever it, whatever it may be. And so there'll be mistakes, uh, intentional 
careful mistakes in technical diagrams, things like that. And it doesn't invalidate the the patent. You know, it's just like on there and it's all you get. I mean, and that goes way back. Uh, Charles Babbage that uh, developed the uh, forerunner to the modern computer idea uh, had these beautiful uh, engineering diagrams that uh, circulated around showing exactly all the gears and wheels and steampunk coolness <laughs> that uh, com comprised the device. And there were mistakes in there. When the London Museum was trying to do a modern replica of his uh, one of his machines, he didn't get to build all of them because he talked to the British government out of a huge amount of money for development on these. Uh, the uh, they went ahead and built one, and they discovered these. You know, bright engineers looking at it said, "Well, no, this goes over here." So they fixed them, and they got the thing to work, and it works fine. Uh, within whatever it does. Anyway, that so that can that could apply to a lot of these patent stories. You know, you get the patent because I've done that. You know, you get the patent to something and you say, "Oh, I can build one now." Well, not necessarily. <laughs> so you never know. But uh, on this other stuff, um, I there's a well, I'll get to the big question in a second. But I got two I got two UFO observations of uh, my own that I think are relevant one night there was this rumbling outside and I went outside to look because it was completely overcast even though there was a full moon you mean and, down near uh, San Diego where you live yes yes right northern San Diego County and I'm in a quiet zone where they uh, there's very little air traffic and it's the way that a you know a, a, a plane like Air Force One would fly in along there you know, it's part of their route to stay out of the normal traffic lanes. And uh, so I get a lot of military traffic from Miramar, which is not far away. Anyway, I hear this rumbling. So I went outside to see what it was. And I walked across the street and I looked up and there was a big hole in the clouds. And that's the rumbling was coming from up there. Uh, it sounded like thunder. And uh, but, you know, no rain or anything. And this triangular craft rather slowly came overhead. Now, the clouds would be at about, uh, what, uh, a little under 2,000 feet, and that's the only thing I had to go by in this local terrain. And the uh, it was brightly lit behind the clouds because of that. And this thing came skimming over the clouds, and I could, it had colored light panels on the bottom, which were reflecting off the top of the cloud layer. It was just – it was literally skimming it, so mm. there was no question about it. Uh, I mean, as clear a look as you could get. Now, of course, I didn't have a camera. Um, well, this was back about six weeks before the first Gulf War. So oh, in 91. So, yeah, so nobody had, uh, you know, it, it happened to be back then. So uh, anyway, uh, so I burned it into my brain as best I could. It was a slightly not quite there isosceles triangle shape. And it had the entire bottom surface was covered with these little neurals that looked exactly like uh, a little tiny shower head or a sprinkler, you know, a rain bird or something. They looked exactly like sprayers of some sort or the nozzles uh, over your seat on an airplane that you adjust for the, you know, something along those lines. But there were rows and rows of them evenly all across the exposed surface of so the underside of this thing, which was a typical sort of stealth gray color, uh, the body of it. But the light panels were long rectangles like you would see in a fluorescent ceiling. And the light in them was backwards, like right down the long uh, axis of these was a blinding bright light 
just a bar of it, and the color got darker as you went out toward the edges. And they weren't even normal colors. One of them was pink. Uh, one was a kind of a turquoise blue. Uh, one was a fairly ordinary green color. Uh, and um, the, uh, there were like five of them. And they were not distributed evenly across the bottom. And in the middle of this whole assemblage of strangeness up there uh, was what were very clearly what Bombay doors, you know, just just big old just big old Bombay doors that would open up and drop something out. So this thing wasn't making any noise except for that rumbling sound, which was reverberating everywhere. And it gave me the impression there were a bunch of these flying above the clouds, and I just happened to see one go straight overhead. Now I don't know what that was, but I believe it was built here, just because of yeah. The, it sounds like here. How yeah, big? How, other, how how big? How big was the craft? Okay, well I'll put all the mathematicians to work. I said the cloud cover was, and I did check that as best as I could, about two thousand feet or a little less. So that's uh, you know, and they weren't I, however thick they were. The cloud, the ship was right above them, and I stretched my arms straight up from my shoulders, like. Uh, Whatever that sports thing is, what the umpires do, where they stick their arms up in the air. Oh, you mean uh, the, you mean you mean the ref in the end zone holds his arms that up. That thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I did a I did, visually exactly like that without the striped shirt, and um, <laughs> I it was that was how that was how big it was from uh, tip to tip. Well, like I said, it was a little bit longer than it was wide, but uh, it was. Uh, that's like twenty thirty degrees. Yeah, but yeah, and I mean that, at that, two thousand feet. You no, know, remember one radius fifty-seven degrees. So if it was if it was fifty-seven degrees wide at two thousand feet, it would be two thousand feet long. So it's two. It would it was like it was like an aircraft carrier. It was a thousand feet or more. That that seems reasonable. Yeah, floating silently, except for the rumbling, which may have been a low subharmonic. Of the drive system, yeah, because it was not it did not feel like or sound nor sound like it was coming from it, you know it, but it was following it, you know it was like it was a null or a node in the middle of this noise oh. the noise was, so that's well uh, yes Tim i you know yeah, yeah actually if I, if I could jump in um what Please. you're describing sound what you're describing sounds like. Um, what's what's called the stealth blimp? Have you heard about that at all? I have, and I don't think that's what this was. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, because actually, this was my believe it or not, this was my UFO experience, which which I've compartmentalized pretty well because I've never figured it out. But um, yeah, I mean, in in my case, I, I had it was yeah, like you described, it was kind of a flat gray um, black triangle. It was big. It flew over. It flew right over my house. I think this would have been '96, um, and it had. And the thing that got me about it was when it flew over my house. I, I mean, it was low enough to the ground. When you were looking at the middle of it, you couldn't see the edges of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it almost looked a little bit like a B2, except you know the B2 is is a wing shape. This thing was a triangle, you know, and it was enormous. I mean, this thing would. Be probably a couple of B2s in, in wingspan. Um, sure. And the thing that got me about it was the underside of the hull had double row rivets. It had hull plates with rivets, and it had 
like Bombay doors, like you're talking about. So it was about. like steampunk. Yeah, are you sure they were rivets? I because I could see little nozzles. I really, I think I had an uncannily clear look at it because of the conditions. You know, the air was clear except for those clouds and the and the, there was a full moon behind them, so it, it there was lots of illumination. But it, are you mm, sure they were yeah. rivets? Because it it, lo- it looked like rivets to me. It looked like overlapping hull plates with dual row rivets, and and I, I did the same thing. I, I tried to burning into my memory right when you don't have a camera you just kind of look up and just um yeah yeah and and i heard the low rumbling it was a subaudible rumbling in in my case it was you kind of had to like listen for it right it was like um Mm -hmm. and and so uh yeah i mean this thing flew right overhead though and flew right out over the bay and banked and uh and so the the thing that got me about it was hey guys um, hold it there we're at the bottom of the hour We'll pick this up exactly where Tim leaves it. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, our resident generalist, who knows something about almost everything. And Tim Ventura, founder and head of American Anti-Gravity, and a recent series of Zoom global conferences on anti-gravity and the state of the art, the experimenters, the theoreticians, just... Add money, and who knows what will come out of the woodwork. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone. Last half hour, Sunday night, Monday morning, July 11th, 12th, here in the Land of Enchantment. My guests this morning are Tim Ventura and Ron Gerbron. And Keith Morgan has been chiming in with some very interesting tidbits on uh, current patents, technology, UFO developments, so, gentlemen, uh, let's continue. Tim, you were in the middle of a story. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and again, I'm not describing in detail, but, but yeah, like Ron had said, I, I saw a black triangle flew right over me. I mean, it was 
Um, it was following the curve of hill that I lived on. I was living in Bellingham, Washington at the time. Um, it was, I don't know, probably around seven o'clock at night. And so I would imagine, I would think probably lots of people saw it, but, but maybe not, you know, it was, it was kind of, I don't know, people were kind of winding down for the evening. I'm not sure how many folks were outside. Um, and you know, it, ma- it makes you wonder that the thing that got me about it though, that was interesting was I, again, I, I saw this, I asked a few friends, I actually called the airport and the police station to see if they'd had any sightings. Right. I was like, well, this, this is just the darndest thing. And, um, you know, and of course they didn't have anything. The airport was actually closed, you know, it's a, it's a smaller airport. And so, um, basically I kind of came away empty handed and I just kind of filed it away in my brain and said, okay, well this happened. I don't know what the heck to make of it. And, uh, so that was in 96 and later in 2001, 2002, I think when the internet was kind of picking up steam, um, I stumbled across something called the stealth blimp and they had a list of sightings and most of them were over the great lakes region. And the, the, the craft that the people described was almost identical to what I saw, you know, and it was massive. And, and some people were speculating that this was a rigid hulled dirigible, right? So, um, so if you can imagine a giant metal hulled helium. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. I'm having a leap of um, intuition here. Was it called the stealth blimp? Because to most people, 99.9999%, anything big that hovers silently has got to be a blimp because they don't know from anti-gravity from Grandma Moses. So it's got the name, a stealth blimp, but in fact, it's not a blimp. It, it I'd, be, I'd vote with Richard on that one. Yeah. It, I mean, to me, honestly, if, if you were going to pick, like, what is the closest what is the closest thing it looked like? I would say it looked like a small Star Destroyer from Star Wars. Ah! And I know that sounds... <laughs> No, it's that that perfect. No, it's no, not that perfect. perfect. That's, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, so, you, you know, and, and I, I don't know, it makes you wonder. I mean, the thing that I saw, uh, the thing that jumped out at me, and again, you know, I, I difficult to call the UFO because what kind of a UFO has rivets? Obviously, a steampunk UFO. Yeah, I've got a worse one. If you if you have something built out of composite res- resins, uh, how often do you staple it or staple or rivet it together? Yeah. You know, that's why I that's mean, that for me is the is the fatal flaw for that because I mean, you, plating you know is required for rivets and they work better if they're more or less lined up. <laughs> uh, but it's, there was an awful lot of them. Uh, yeah, no, realistically, by materials, you wouldn't make it out of uh, you wouldn't make it out of um, hull. Uh, because you know, no gas is going to lift that. So that's why I said I, I line up with Richard on this. But I, I, I just want to say two things quickly. The uh, uh, you see a lot of reports about triangular UFOs, and almost always they're completely symmetrical. You know, they've got like three lights on the bottom, and they're right at the points and so forth. And this was just so out of kilter from that that obviously it was in, it looked like a kludge. You know, it was intentional engineering to get something done. Are any of you so, familiar, either you guys or maybe Keith too, with uh, Paul LaViolette's stunning classic work on anti-gravity propulsion technologies, which came out several years ago? And he documents from secret sources and memoranda 
going all the way back before T. Townsend Brown, a dedicated deep black anti-gravity research and development effort, which resulted in a lot of hardware and a lot of deep black projects that never have been acknowledged by you know, the mainstream military community, but in fact, we know are a huge reservoir of engineering and flight experiments and developed technology on which one could build an entire secret terrestrial or U.S. space program working with anti-gravity, which, of course, was, was part of the disclaimer in the DNI report that they kind of, you know, cast around. And it's not ours because none of the guys said, you know, it's ours. Thought so it was another silly statement because if it is really deep black, why are they going to admit to a Senate committee until they're forced to, you know, pull kicking and screaming to sit in the witness chair under pain of, you know, congressional sanction that any of our own deep black, incredibly advanced anti-gravity technologies uh, actually exist. Yeah. I, I, you know, and then I, maybe another possibility is maybe, maybe this is a fake. You were talking about the Brookings report and, and movies and stuff to expose people to, you know, this growing truth of, of ET, I guess. Right. What's so, a fake? so what, what if it's a fake to, to run up UFO reports, right? What fake? I, mean, I, I don't, what's a fake? What's a fake? I don't understand. Oh well, I, I mean, what, what I was, I mean, again, the this this, you know, what if they what if they were basically faking some kind of a UFO to generate UFO reports? You, you know what I mean? Do you sort of want, the dark you, side of Richard of the story that Richard told. Yeah. You want to hear a really bizarre yeah. thing that came out this morning, out of Branson's own mouth, which I did not know. He was asked by some reporter, I think Reuters at the press conference after the successful flight, if he carried any personal mementos to the edge of space and back. And he opened up one of the pockets in the uh, uh, Under Armour uh, suits they were all wearing, and he pulls out a sheaf of pictures, and he starts going through them one by one. Family pictures, grandchildren, some mementos from friends of his, etc. Then he pulls out one picture, and he says, this is kids standing in front of the fake UFO that we flew over London in the 1980s and scared everybody to death. And he goes into the details. In other words, in his own historic breaking the sound barrier paradigm shift of commercial civilian space travel, he deliberately flaunts a photo of a fake UFO he created and the public outcry among the London police and Scotland Yard and a Bobby that ran like hell when their fake ET emerged from the balloon UFO in Hyde Park and started toward the Bobby who had said before it landed, I'll take care of this. And then he ran away at warp nine. And in the middle of this press conference, you know, Branson is telling this UFO story about his own activities in faking a UFO. Yeah. So I, yeah, I mean, potentially. Funny. Yeah. It, it, it's, I don't know. There's some strangeness. I, I'm looking forward to you hearing think? it. You think? I think that we'll, <laughs> I think that we'll have them. It, it's, it, it, I mean, you know, but, but again, I, I think the part, at least for me, I think the part that's been the, the biggest, um, 
disconnect for me this year is just this thought that, okay, UFOs are real, right? And it's not, it, you know, it's, it's not just me that's saying it. This is, you know, the federal government, right? And so that's, there, I think there's going to be an emotional acceptance process, and, and we're probably all going to have to kind of work towards that. It'll take a while, but, you know, a lot of doors will open as a result. Okay, we only got a few minutes left here. It's about, uh, we got about 20 minutes, okay? I want to direct everybody back to my section of Radio with Pictures. I want to direct you to item numbers 7 and 8, and we'll get to 6 in a moment. 7 is a close-up of the largest satellite of Jupiter, in fact, the largest satellite in the solar system called Ganymede. And it was taken by a recent flyby of the Juno NASA mission, which has a very good camera. And what NASA does is they take these pictures. It's a rotating spacecraft. So the pictures are kind of like line scanned, like an old fashioned fax machine. And computers now can undo the, the rotation and the scanning and the geometry. And they put these amazing images together. They then put them on their website, which is item number eight. On, on my section of radio with pictures, and then average citizens who know how to manipulate software and Photoshop, et cetera, et cetera, they take these images, these official images, and they produce their own uh, civilian products from these official NASA Jovian and Jovian satellite images. Well, anyway, if you take a look at number seven, click on it. From several different processors, of the same NASA Ganymedian data, there is this stunning confirmation that covering the entire globular surface of the satellite Ganymede, which is 3,000 plus miles in diameter, it's a moon of Jupiter bigger than the planet Mercury. There is this ancient, incredibly visible, glass-shattered, dome-like structure covering the entire moon and obviously in very bad condition because it's been millions of years since somebody built it a long, long time ago in a uh, planetary system far, far away. My point is this. If you look at that image, just that one image, and uh, we probably should post the entire disk image so you can look at the limb all the way around. I've sent this to Ron. I've sent it to several other members of our team. There's no doubt there's an enormous, gargantuan, totally impossible for any conventional terrestrial technology structure, a mega, mega, mega structure globing in an entire moon of the largest planet of the solar system millions of years ago, obviously built by someone some real physical beings with a technological, you know, advance that makes us look like we're still in the caves. I have been looking at this kind of extraterrestrial architecture since I started looking back in the 1980s at the face on Mars. So for me, when you have architecture built by some extraordinarily advanced beings, race, all across the solar system, which shows up on NASA data, Chinese data, Russian data, Japanese data, Indian data, Israeli data. It says to me, well, if there's architecture, 
there have to be architects. So the idea that UFOs are real and they're being flown by someone not from here, and at least a percentage of them are flown by extraterrestrials from a very long distance away. I mean, I don't have to go from belief to experience because I've been living with the experience of real verifiable ruins built by somebody for decades. So to me, the whole extraterrestrial archaeological study that Enterprise has been spearheading for decades is the way to separate the facts of the UFO community from the fiction because the only people from out there purporting to have arrived here in some disclosure scenario where they announce we're here will be the folks that tell us the reality of all the stuff our own space programs have verified are all around us, ancient, incredibly inhabited and sophisticated, now long gone solar system. Thoughts? Uh, well, I think that's a topic for another day, to be honest. That's a, that's a big one, right? I mean... You wanted big picture. Yeah. Well, Why is it a topic for another day? The ruins are out there. The ruins well, are real. The ruins were built by somebody. And why are those somebody? In other words, I'm looking, I think, at potential ancient ancestors of humanity. If that's true, yeah, and I, who I, would I, have I, more I, I, interest in the current state of humanity than our own relatives, the family? Well, and, and that's – yeah, that's where I thought you were going. Okay, you were right. saying the UAPs are us, right? That's, no, no. I didn't you know. say UAPs. I said UFOs, which is a much bigger subject than the UAPs. The UAPs are only those 144 incidents reported to the Defense Department from 2004 to the present. The UFO subject is so much bigger and deeper and longer and centuries, if not millennia, in, in, in duration – that is a vast overarching reality of which the UAP phenomenon is a tiny, tiny subset. And the only reason it's gaining credence is because the most, trust, the most trusted U.S. institution yet, the military, is reporting it from a different set of sensors, multiple observers, multiple incidents, multiple time frames. That's the database they're working from, but it's a tiny fraction of the entire field that's going to open up once there are hearings. Yeah, yeah. No, I and I would agree with that 100. percent I I think that I I think that the the military the June 25th report that UAP report it it confirms it's confirmation of something that's much larger and it's opening a really big door and and I I don't I don't think I disagree with what you're saying you know and. It, the question is just digging until we learn more, right? It's, but there is this question of how long have they been with us? And it's starting to look like they've been with us the whole time. We just didn't know what they were, you know? And, and then, then there's this question of, are they part of us, right? Is this our ancestors? Is this ancient humans? I mean, you talked about a breakaway civilization, but could this be an ancient civilization that, you know, did, did we evolve someplace else or did we evolve here and and this technology was developed and then lost i mean these are yeah very very big questions they're huge and, and, important uh, fundamental questions and the cool part 
gentlemen, the cool part is it's all going to become mainstream as those hearings commence because you know that all one senator or one congressman has to do, prompted by his constituents, that we're going to lay out in future weeks how people can actually influence these committees by sending questions and demanding answers. All one senator or congressman has to do is to ask the witness, do you think some of these are extraterrestrial beings? And he, remember, the guy or gal is under oath. They have to, under penalty of perjury, answer truthfully. And if they demur and say, well, I can only answer that in private session, bingo, it's Katie bar the door. Uh, Richard? Yes. I think everybody is, well, everybody. Okay, okay you're everybody. <laughs> you're every man in this. Uh, is uh, missing an important detail of the, of the question. I remember a conversation I had a long time ago with somebody who was um, well, military and um, not, not a political, you know, in, but kind of a mib, I guess. Anyway, um, we, we, we talked a little bit about uh, disclosure because he said, what are you looking for? I said, I want disclosure. I want everything to come out. I think it's time for humanity to move on to the next phase. And he goes, we can't, he said, with all this angst in his voice. No, we can't. Uh, people, people don't want to know that. And I said, oh, I think they do. He said, well, what would happen? And he's acting like I knew exactly what, you know, this, the secret part of it was, which I don't. Uh, and um, he, uh, I said, well, whatever comes next is what's going to happen, you know, and uh, that, you know, that's that's my attitude about this. But I, there's what is this? Why can't they handle it? Question. You know, that, that's we that's if you're going to deal with well, the big picture, my you have to prejudice, deal with that. It, exactly. And my prejudice is the real reason. And gentlemen, you can agree or disagree. And we've got 10 minutes to do both. My feeling is the whole reason for the UFO cover up is not just because of the technology, anti-gravity, free energy, you know, ditching oil, ditching coal, ditching the, you know, the, the profit margins, corporations, the, you know, charging for reality, the way Buckminster Fuller thought was silly decades ago. I think the real reason for the entire cover-up is that UFOs don't represent aliens. They represent, present family. They represent what Neil Armstrong said that night on, in 1969, July 20th, when he said that's one small step for man, meaning us, one giant leap for mankind, meaning all the folks out there to whom we owe our history, our genesis, our origins, our relationships, our very existence, because it's all about the family and it's the family they're trying to get us to ignore and they're suppressing because we dare not know to their detriment our own real extraordinary interstellar history. I don't think that's enough. Really? Well, yeah, I uh well because I that's you know it's it's well it's it's pat, you know, it's it's um uh, too, it's too compact and self-contained. I think there's motivations behind this that go into a lot of other areas. This is not just about the technology. 
And it's not just about the fact that we have ancestors somewhere else. You know, this is, I mean, obviously the driving force is the control from our overlords. You know, it goes back to Charles Fort. He figured this out a little over 100 years ago. You know, we have to be owned by somebody. And there's, yeah, there's but if our owners are members like of, if, if our owners are our cousins, you know, in other words, we're a slave race because the overlords no more have have affected history and have bent it such that we're in this depressed, horrible state by design, not by accident, but because someone is keeping us at this level. Because you're right, it's about power and control, and we see microcosms of this unfolding every day in every capital of the planet. Look at Haiti. Yeah, well, I would, for the 19.5 people out there in the audience that watched uh, Jupiter Ascending, which you still <laughs> seriously resist, uh, the, I'd say we're a, feed, we're a feed source. I mean, if you have a, uh, are you going to let your cattle start developing um, their own tractors? No. You know, this is the the a level is set and it's maintained. I think that was covered in a book called Animal Farm many decades ago. Hey, we only got a few minutes left. Yeah. Let me go to item number okay. six. All right. Item number okay. six in my radio pictures items. Remember, click on the link right below the banner at the top of the guest page to take you to my items. Go to number six. NASA announced last week as part of an official press release citing two teams that they have melded together, they now have launched an official NASA program to look for alien megastructures circling other stars. Now, you can't have alien megastructures unless, boys and girls, you have aliens. So by definition, remember I said at the top of the show, all of this stuff is is together it's all connected it's not happening separately it's all happening as part of a gestalt right now nasa officially tonight is in the business of looking for things built by aliens the next step of course is can the aliens come here well of course they can that was kind of rhetorical yeah, I know. Hey, guys, we got about four minutes till the end of the show. Uh, Tim, uh, you've been a tour de force. You've taken this down all kinds of interesting byways and flyways. You wanted big picture. Where do you think big picture this is ultimately going and how soon? Well, I mean, I, I think it, it's difficult to tell. It seems like this move. It, it moves forward. It kind of lurches forward every, you know, few weeks, a few months. Um, uh, hearings make a lot of sense. I, I think that this has created a lot more questions than it has answers. Um, I, I mean, again, you've got Representative Carson. I believe it was Andre Carson mm-hmm. who is already calling for hearings. You know, so I think that we're going to see it move that direction. Um, I think that we're going to learn a lot more about ourselves and our history. No, no matter what the, no matter what comes out of this, I think that we're going to learn a lot more about ourselves and our history, you know? So I think that's kind of where it's going next. After that, I don't know. I can't make any predictions. Um, my, my gut feeling with the Tic Tacs, and this is just kind of, I, I go back and forth on things, but I tend to think that these are von Neumann probes. 
I, I, I tend to think that they're robotic. I don't think that there's anything inside of them. Um, you know, uh, that, that's just kind of my gut feeling, but I, I could be completely mistaken. But that, that doesn't mean that there aren't other things out there with E.T. I mean, so wait, wait, wait. If, the, the if, 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 if they're von Neumann probes, meaning they're robotic drones from somewhere far away, why are they tooling around U.S. military battle fleets? Well, it, it, it's a good question. I, I mean, I, the reason that I tend to think that is, is space travel is dangerous and boring. And even if you're really good at it, at the very least, it's boring. Right, so it makes a lot of sense to have a robot kind of do a lot of this stuff. And well, well why is it boring? Uh, if, this, if 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 warp drive is, you know, theoretically possible, and you said yourself that there are weird field effects around some of these Navy videos, then why is it boring if you can get you know to Alpha Centauri in time for lunch? Well, it's a good point. It's a good point. I mean, I, I would say that if you're exploring system after system after system and all you're seeing is, you know, rocks, and dirt and deserts and stuff like that, um, you know, they would probably, again, the idea with the von Neumann probe is to automate a lot of that and then just focus on planets where you find but stuff. See, right? The, all right, all right. So, you, you've just opened up a whole new can of worms. We need another hour to, to tackle this. But you just laid out the standard model, which is that we're being explored for the first time by aliens who are intrigued with our primitiveness, our planet, our planetary system, our culture, whatever, whatever, whatever. My model is it's family. It's part of the control mechanism to keep us down on the, and it has nothing to do with real aliens because we're part of a family history, which is so weird and so warped and so shattered by a war that in fact, it's it's not aliens at all. It's us, and us yes. and families are the biggest source of dissension in human history. Why would this be any different? Hey, gentlemen, I'm sorry, Ron. You know, we'll we'll, we'll catch up next time. We're out of runway. Yep. We are out of show. Um, I want to thank both my guests this morning, uh, Ron Gerbron and Tim Ventura. Tim, we definitely are going to have to keep track of this as things progress, and. Uh, I guess we're just going to have to have you back. Well, that's the end of this week. I'm sorry I wasn't here yesterday, but uh, computers can be very weird sometimes. Next week, I've got some potential surprises, which uh, may destabilize the paradigm even more. So until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. For God's sake. Keep looking up.